Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. First issue. Hello everybody, it's Wednesday, August 27th, 2014, and you are listening to the Talking Comics Podcast. I am your host, Bobby Shortle, and I'm in the house with Steve Say, Haru, Mr. Bob Ryer, Good night. and our very special guest, Miss Stephanie Cook. Oh, thank you. Hi. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. <gasps> oh, thank you for having me. It's so lovely to be here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stephanie, welcome back. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I am happy to be back. It's been too long. It's been a while. Yes. It's been a while. I, I allowed you to come back. I know. Thanks, Bobby. <laughs> it happened. You, you did not get permanently replaced by the, our, our Canadian Other guest sassy host. Canadians. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Although I'm sure Nicole would have, Nikki would have done a great job, but I'm happy to make my return a... Um, and you picked a good show to come back for because we've got a very very exciting show uh this week um we have in parts the full batgirl team oh what we've got uh (laughs) cameron stewart and brendan fletcher uh together and we also have an interview with babs tar boom um so the whole team is on this show albeit separately Uh, i bet these are gonna be good interviews i bet they will be too though we don't know yet because we haven't done them no no uh, <laughs> I predict great things. Yes, I predict they're going to be great. I, I predict uh, lots of laughs and good information about process. Um, but yeah, we're really, really excited uh, to talk to those guys and for you guys to hear that stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, so that'll be later on in the show. Uh, before we get to that stuff, though, obviously we have our books of the week to get to. But before that, um, last week a little bit of news hits. Uh, with uh we'll start with the negative stuff first and then we'll go to the we'll cap it off with a nice little positive thing that happened as well um so last week we were privy to seeing uh both covers of spider-woman number one uh written by dennis hopeless with art by greg land we saw the greg land regular cover um and the variant cover uh by we're gonna i'm gonna say milo milo Uh, manara mm, sounds right um now I have I had no idea who Milo Nara was before this. Um, so, but Bob, I, I, I'm sure I don't know if you knew who he was before this. Okay, so who is Milo Nara before we even get into anything? He is one of Europe's most prominent artists in the world of softcore erotica. All right. Occasionally nudity, more often than not, just very very suggestively posed. And he's done some other covers for Marvel over the years, and when you see them spread out. They're cheesecakey swimsuit sleazy. Not awful, but not great either. We get to this. 
And yeah, if you guys haven't seen uh, the image, you gotta Google it because like it's hard, it's hard it. to explain it. It's like Spider Woman is in body paint. It's like he doesn't understand what a costume is. It's just body paint. She has her butt has been painted red like a baboon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you saw it from the back, she'd look like one of those red-tailed baboons. Yes, it's. Uh, it's, it's in awful. cat it's terms, awful. she's presenting. Yes, yes. definitely presenting. Yeah. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the the image is the variant cover. Um, you guys, he's an erotic artist. Yes. Uh, this has obviously turned into a firestorm in the last week, um, with several Marvel employees seemingly putting their foots in their mouths uh, about what's going on. Um, the The issue has been discussed widely i want to see first uh dan slot really got a really shit out of the stick with the stuff that he said because he wasn't really defending the cover at all but he got roped into roped into it and he's kind of backed away from it now uh tom brevoort has been a little bit less uh kind yeah. in the things that he said um I, i'm gonna pull up those exact quotes but uh bob uh, uh you know, and it looks like this is a variant cover, so I want people to, to know that at least it doesn't make it right any less any more right. But it is a variant cover; it's not the one that's going to be seen most by most people on yeah. on the stands. That is true, but in every solicitation oh, and yeah, in absolutely. previews, it has the equal weight. And in most cases, it's been shown to the left, which is the one you're going to see right. first. Mm-hmm. It's the one that's getting the most press. You oh, see well, that you as, see the variant more than you see the regular. Right. And here's the, my real issue. It's sort of what got Dan Slott in trouble. Mm-hmm. I have less problem with Milo Manara, this is what he does, than Marvel doing this colossally ham-fisted thing of hiring this guy. You're going to get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. If you had instead hired the, the, I don't know, John Willie, who drew The Adventures of Gwendolyn 50 years ago, and said, here, do a Spider-Woman cover, well, that's what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. This was... Especially on a book that's supposed to be helping you continue the re-energization, re-ener is, forget it. <laughs> re-energize. I'm re-energizing. I tried to get too many syllables into there, and I'm angry. I got your back, Bob. I'm angry. Thank you. I appreciate that. It would have been bad on any book. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong. It's even worse here when you're trying to get this character a solo book out again, have it work, coming from mixed history over the years but been so great lately in Avengers and Assemble and through yeah. the Infinity event. People are really looking forward to it. Dennis Hopeless is writing, and he's had to now say, look, it's not me, and I'm really sorry. We're not going to objectify her in the book. The story's not going to be like that. They've created a giant stink bomb on a book that should be a really positive, forward-looking thing. That's it's hard to believe that he did this, but boy, they really stepped in it. Well, it's a shame for the book to get off to this kind of start, right? That more mm. people are talking about how terrible they think the variant cover is rather than, you know, drumming up interest in the character and the idea that she's getting her own book and that Silk will be, hopefully she's on the cover, will be following her and just, it's exciting stuff, but all anybody's talking about is this terrible cover. Mm. And it just... It's. I think it's a shame. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Stephanie, what, what? Other than the being body paint, what was? What's your opinion like, on everything? I think it's important. It's not terrible. Like, that's the thing. Like, the art isn't terrible. It's what Bob said. It's what you paid for. Mm-hmm. If we're talking in Minara's style, it's great. It's fantastic. It's a fucking masterpiece. For all I know, I'm not that familiar with his work. But again, the fault does lie with 
Marvel here. Because why would you hire an erotic artist? Like, it's just yeah. mind-baffling. Like, who was like, this is a good idea? Women love to be objectified. They fucking love it. <laughs> like, they will see this and they'll be like, hot damn, even I would go lesbian for her. <laughs> no! Like, this isn't his fault. He did a great piece with the style that he works in. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it's really important to note that difference. Um, Marvel made a terrible life decision by approving it. Amen. And I think that is just, you know, the bottom line is who, who at Marvel said this was okay. Was bottom line a pun, by the way? Whoa. <laughs> Sorry. Bums. <laughs> never, never apologize for a good pun. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. On John Byrne's website, somebody, they were debating this whole thing. It went on for pages and pages. Someone tried to Photoshop. To explain to people who aren't looking at it, or, or will look at it soon, the shot is sort of over her head, down her arched back and her rear, her tuchus, mm-hmm. is way up in the air with a huge heart. It's not an apple, it's not a heart, it's her bum. Mm-hmm. And someone tried to Photoshop it out <laughs> by filling in the crack as if it was with red mortar. <laughs> and so uh, John Burns' reaction was, now it looks like a diaper. It doesn't got any better. It's it's hideous. Yeah. Oh. Um. And this is the thing. Like. Right. So. Like Stephanie was saying, uh, it has nothing to do actually with the artist at all. That's right. It. it, You know, Marvel hired this artist to do what he does, and he did what he does. Right. And uh, the the blame is fully like we were saying is on Marvel, one hundred percent completely. Uh. You know we. We have maligned and yelled at DC for for less less than this, and Marvel is being just as bad, if not worse, at, at this point. Mm. Um, and look, people who work there aren't idiots. They know exactly what's going to happen when, when they release this image. They know that this sort of fire is going to begin. There's no way that the, when they were releasing, they weren't going to they weren't thinking that people were going to hate it. A lot of people were going to hate it, but but. They were thinking now about two hundred percent more people are going to be talking about Spider Woman than would have been talking about it before. That makes it somehow worse. It's more cynical, yes. you know. Yeah, it, absolutely, it, uh, absolutely. I think that if this was on, you know, if this was on Minara's personal site, or it was, you know, on his blog, or if it was a a print that was up somewhere, mm-hmm. I think people would be like, "Oh, that's kind of weird," but whatever. It's his art; he can do whatever he wants. Uh, the fact that Marvel kind of sanctions it as a depiction of uh, a character, a mainstream uh, superhero comic—that's th- the weird part about it. Um, this isn't that doesn't belong, you know, in in a superhero setting because it's like Bobby, you were saying. Um, I think it was a few shows ago. It does not amplify the heroic aspects no. of the character or the strength aspects of the character. It highlights the sexual aspects of the character, and that shouldn't be what the superhero books are about. It's about them being heroes. What do you think the mentality is when like, they receive a cover or they, they go into something willingly and they're going to release it knowing that it's going to cause a stir? Do you, I mean, does the stir, regardless of people talking about it, do you think it actually amounts to books being sold? Um, it certainly probably amounts to variant covers being sold. I think absolutely. I think you will see this. I think you'll see the price of this shoot up really, really far on, e- on eBay. Oh, absolutely. Um, people are going to be look. Would you have that cover? You know that, that, that that's what they they want. That 
whether it's to artificially inflate sales numbers on a book like Spider Woman, so possibly when it trickles down to us and we read the numbers out and it's like, oh, 80,000 people bought it, they're hoping we forget about the fact that there's this kind of variant cover that is is ca- causing such a controversy, mm-hmm. uh, which we won't. No, it'll be in my not the cover of the week segment. You can <laughs> count on that. <laughs> Uh, so you know, I, I just think that it's there's something very cynical about it, more than just the offensive mm-hmm. nature of it. I think it's very, very cynical about the reason why you do it. I think there's another there's another conspiracy theory. The regular Greg Land cover isn't so hot either. It this makes his cover look like Kirby in comparison. Somebody um, redesigned that as well. Somebody like put up they put a side by side comparison of changing some of the like the body positioning and it stuff. Would be like nice that. if she had a leg. Yeah, it's sort of. Yeah, it, it's a, it's not a good it's not a good cover. No. Um, I don't I don't I've seen both and I didn't care for either one. And wor- I, worse, it does seem like uh, this cover is actually swiped mm-hmm. from the artist's own work mm-hmm. because I've seen that there've been uh, eBay things or whatever selling yeah. that that old book now because now there's controversy about that and there've been internet bloggers and whatever putting yeah. up it's from Click. It's the exact same pose, only she's more naked. Yeah, I mean, I I really like both characters that are on the covers, but the cover doesn't excite me. It doesn't it doesn't say like you know make a bang with a number one comic. It just There's the yellow so background. So many sex puns in this. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just the that like that blase yellow background with their colors against it. I just don't think aesthetically that it looks good. It's not if something that I saw on the shelf, like, oh, that's beautiful. What is this? Oh, Spider-Woman has a number one. Oh, this looks cool. I should check it out. Some people do judge a book by its cover, especially new books when they're on the shelves. I'm just, it doesn't call out to me with, with anything. I am still curious about the book and seeing the inside of it, but, you know, neither cover would attract me to the book, and that seems like a misstep. Right. Look at the Electra cover. Yeah. The Phil Noto Black Widow covers that well, I want to I want to read that yeah just that cover this is now I have to hold my nose and get past these covers to read a story that might be really good and it's all because of a terrible business decision covers are important yeah oh. yeah absolutely um <laughs> and the things that Menar himself is saying I don't know I I guess he's an older gentleman right he's been he's working been, since like 1969 yeah, he's been working, working 40 years um he said first of all he kind of blames our our sensitivity to it on the rising power of islam which is a very weird <laughs> thing um but uh yeah. he is, does say this is steve you're, you're, you talked he, about he this blames before. god <laughs> yeah he blames yeah. leprechauns uh before yeah. Yeah. I said, after it's that it's unicorn <laughs> he says after that it's not my fault if women are like that um and this is funny because this is from the av club <laughs> and he says minara added ignoring the fact that most women are nothing like that women's <laughs> bodies have taken this form for over the millennia in order to avoid the extinction of the species in, in fact um <laughs> oh now it's darwin too he says hey can we uh can we please concentrate on on something besides tna for once um <sighs> so and look, I mean, he sounds like a crazy person, but there's... <laughs> I don't know. I tend to walk down the street, like, with my butt in the air. Like, I kind of feel like that's the only way I can find a true soulmate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't have a personality, and, you know, I really love to be objectified again. So Check when I walk out, down people. the street, I think that's the best way for people to understand what kind of person I am. In a Godzilla um, onesie. Yeah, I, I just think... That really shows the true me. 
Um, <laughs> and, and again, like, he could have, it's again, the onus is all on Marvel. He could have submitted this cover and they would have become like, nope, that's never going to fly. They didn't yeah. do that. They accepted it as in, in, the cover. And, you know, Tom Brevoort, um, who has not helped the situation at all, um, he said, I think that the people who are upset about the cover have a point, at least in how the image relates to them. But by the same token, Milo Manara, Milo Manara has been working as a cartoonist since 1969, and what he does hasn't materially changed in all that time. So when we say Manara cover, his body of work indicates what sort of thing he's going to do. It's also for a Manara piece, one of the less sexualized ones, at least to my eye. Maybe others feel differently, but given that the character is covered head to toe and is crouched in a spider-like pose, it seems far less exploitive to me than other Manara pieces we've run in previous months and years. Um, But all that said, if the if the right of every reader not to like something. And fortunately, it's a variant cover, so people will likely not need to seek it out if they want it, rather than it being the display piece for the book. I think a conversation about how women are depicted in comics is relevant at this point, and definitely seems to be bubbling up from the zeitgeist. That too is fine. Nothing uh, gets better unless ideas are communicated. Um, so think- he, 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 it, it, it's a little bit... Well, Stephanie, go ahead. No, no, you finish. Go. No, I was saying it's. It just seems a little bit like, yeah, I hear you, but just shut up. It's fine. Like yeah, we, it's yeah. been. But the, but the argument to me is, it's been worse, guys. Like that's not yeah, an argument. Yeah. That's that's uh, that's a poor poor it, argument. Stephanie, go ahead. The thing is, like you know, the he does. Minara does have a piece that this is pretty blatantly, you know, copied mm. from, um, and it's just kind of changed up a bit. And it, I think it's important to note that the porn picture like the original the girl actually technically has more clothes on than spider-woman yes <laughs> and people are gawking at her you know lady bits and she literally has more clothes on than spider-woman because spider-woman basically has body paint on absolutely and I- this girl has like a dress on and stockings i mean those are actual clothes those are clothes items <laughs> i don't understand why you would make like the executive decision to have an artist from that background to be on this book, especially with, you know, all the female led books that are coming out from Marvel and they're kind of doing this whole, you know, upswing of female readers coming in. It, like I said, it seems like a misstep. It seems like going to the side and being like, yeah, you know what? We don't really, this is it. And that we don't care. Yeah. And if we're going to talk about what poses Spider-Man is in as if it's some sort of reverse Hawkeye initiative, Mm -hmm. that doesn't fly either because it is still different presenting a woman in that position. Mm -hmm. End of story, Mr. Brevoort. And you you can talk out of both sides of your mouth as long as you want. You made a stupid decision and you're going to have to live with people being upset for a while. Yeah. Uh, Hopeless himself has said, he said uh, he has, there is absolutely no plans to sexualize any of the characters in the book and that he has no say over what covers end up on on the books that he writes. So he distanced himself very, very quickly from it. And I do feel bad for him too, because this was a time for him to take another step, you know, into, you know, prominence at the company and as a comic book writer. And hopefully for his sake, this does not damage his career. Um it, it sucks. It, it's 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 a shitty thing to have to deal with, and it just seems like a weird thing to have happen now, um, especially with all the stuff that uh, you, all the books you mentioned before, Bob, that have come out that have been as respectful as possible. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see. Spy, you know, Spider-Man is out in November. Um, we'll see if the cover goes to print. If we actually see it on any shelves, it's wild the way this stuff just spins out of control so quickly. 
Because, I mean, companies have been known to pull stuff like this when yeah. uh, when stuff gets out of hand like this. So. If it's a 1 in 25 variant, I mm-hmm. think is the number, what are we talking about? A couple of thousand books? Yeah. We'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens. But it's the shitty thing. Shitty thing. It's bad Bad on Marvel. Bad, I'm not for I'm Marvel. not for burning books, but if they want to burn this cover, I'd be there. <laughs> Kindling. Um, it's still summer. You can still use it for the bonfire. <laughs> there you go. We could barbecue. All right. I don't know if I want to get the chemicals from the pages and stuff yeah, on my true. food. Did it taste like smut? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a tagline for the show. Hot dogs and smut. Yeah. Tastes like ass. Tastes like, <laughs> like body painted ass. Uh, all right, so let's let's move on from that. Uh, this one other news item for this week that we're going to talk about. It's not really something that we can really uh, get into too much, but it's a cool little fact. Bob, you have a little newspaper article in front of you. Yes, and it, it, it isn't my copy, needless mm-hmm. to because I don't own one. But this week on eBay, no less, the most flawless copy on earth of Action Comics number one, the first appearance of Superman from June 1938, sold. For $3.2 million. Ah, the last I heard it was 2.4. That is quite the jump. 3.2. It's a 9.0. It breaks the record held by Nicolas Cage's old copy, (laughs) which was also a 9.0 with the described as off to cream pages. Oh. (laughs) There are apparently only 30 unrestored Action Ones around. This apparently was bought off the newsstand and kept in a cedar chest for 40 years. It then got sold to somebody else who then went and bought a cedar chest to put it in <laughs> and then kept there for another 25 What is the eBay fee of $3.2 million? <laughs> that PayPal is going to get you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's shipping free. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That service charge yeah. all of a sudden just comes out of your bank account and you, what? Yeah. yeah. This is, you know, there was that book a couple of years ago where the uh, young couple was renovating a house and they found it in yeah. the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the in-laws and the son-in-law then had a tug-of-war and ripped the back cover. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's bad. Fools. It, it ended it's up still selling for like a third of a million dollars. Yeah, th- not too bad. for. <laughs> yeah, for something you found on the wall. Yeah. But this is... Crazy. This is a record until the next one. Yeah. So the, the, the moral is, buy a comic, put it in a coffin for 80 years, and then, yeah. and then pull it out and sell it. Well, have you guys heard... We talked about Mile High mm-hmm. the other day. Have you guys heard of the Mile High Collection? Bob, it's a family show. Okay. Yeah. No, not that kind of. <laughs> Thought we were uh, talking about the club. There was, there was a fella, it's before CGC grading and so on and so forth, the books you wanted to own, they went for four times mint, basically, were the Mile High Collection. A fellow named Edgar Church, who lived out in Denver, bought every comic he could off the newsstand, one of everything, and put him in, similar to this, in a cedar chest. He had one of everything, and the only books that weren't absolutely pristine mint were the ones at the top and the bottom. Mm-hmm. So I think it was the first Captain America was not as good as some other ones you could get, but everything else looked like day one. And that became the first pedigree comic collection. Oh, wow. So this is the sort of the the secondary mile-high action one. Next time around, someone will find a Detective 27, or it'll be a Marvel Comics number one, and here we'll go again at $3.2 million. Somebody sniped my bid. I was at (laughs) 3.1. It would have been fun to try, Came right? Figuring someone's going to beat you, you go for it. I would not take that chance. <laughs> Man. I did that once at a charity auction. at so- was it? I think it was Sotheby's. Who bought it? Who who has the $3.2 million? Um, I mean, because there are some people that I know. Seller Darren Adams recently told that he's, he's a Federal Way Washington-based collectibles dealer. Oh. But he didn't immediately recur- return a call yesterday from the Associated Press. <laughs> He's talking to his tax accountant and lawyers and whatever. Wow. 
Yeah, but they, I don't think they've said... New York Comics Studios, Stephen Fisher and Vincent Zerzolo said yesterday they submitted Sunday's record-setting bid. Okay. So it's New York Comics Studios, Stephen Fischler and Vincent Zerzolo. I Are they Metropolis? I don't know. They might be Metropolis Comics. Hmm. Could you imagine? Like, there are people that sit on their own auctions or they'll have their friends like bid mm. on them to, to, to boost them up within the final minutes. Imagine if you had somebody sitting there and be like, come on, man, you know, 3.1, 3.1, do it. Come on quick. Somebody will top it. We've got 10 minutes left. And it just stopped. Like, dude, <laughs> dude, <laughs> it's not moving. What are we doing here? Call Nick Cage quick. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he probably would have bought it. Just screaming. Just reaching to his couch. <laughs> Take my money. Well, he had a $2.1 million one. Yeah. He has a son named Kal-El, after all. He's an interesting dude. Yes. That is a a way to describe Nicolas Cage. That is the best word I could (laughs) possibly use at this present time. Um, How come he hasn't written a comic yet? I don't know. There's some movie coming out with him and Hayden Christensen. I was like, this is like the perfect hate movie for all the internet right (laughs) here. (laughs) I just said, it looks weird. Oh, yeah. Well, Yeah. yeah, I know, but... Is he dressed like a teddy bear in this one? No, they're like no, medieval I still haven't stuff. seen that. Uh, you don't need to see it. You just need to see the eight-minute YouTube clip. Oh, yeah. That, that's the greatest thing in the world. The Wicker Man. Oh, Nicholas Cage punches punching a girl women. dressed yeah. up as a bear. <laughs> How many women can you punch in the face in eight minutes? A lot. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. It's the best gift. <laughs> All right. So that's it for our little, uh, little uh, mini news section there. Let's uh, move on to our lightning round section. All the books we can fit into three minutes each. Bob, I'm going to let you go first because you have a lot of books. This is going to be an epic Bob lightning round. We're going to try this. When I got the email, I was like, oh, here we go. (laughs) Okay. All right. And lightning round, go. Okay. New Avengers 23, in the wake of the big switch at the end of last issue, there's something really vicious in the air in this one. It's not unexpected, but it's pretty nasty nonetheless. Mighty Avengers 13, which is the issue before the whole big finale, we have back in the present this time, the Deathwalkers want to rule humanity. And they're succeeding with only one issue to go. Can the Mighty Avengers succeed? No. I don't don't even know. Uh, But we'll try. Sensation Comics number one, which was first digital but is now in print. It's Gail Simone, Ethan Van Skyer. And we have a second story by Amanda Dybert and Kat Staggs. It's it's a great, great story. It's one of my favorite Wonder Woman stories of all time. One of my favorite stories of the year. I've got some problems with Ethan Van Skyver's artwork, particularly the cover when you had the wonderful... Phil Jimenez wraparound variant, which should be a poster if DC's listening. Make a poster. We'll all buy it. Storm number two. I think it's another stellar done in one by Greg Peck and Victor Ibanez. At this time, we have some missing teenagers who seem to have literally gone underground. Could Callisto, the leader of the Morlocks, have something to do with it? Find out next time. <laughs> Find out next time. But there's a great moment with Storm and Wolverine. Have a moment in the bar. Ooh. I'm just going to say it's really, really cool. Ms. Marvel number seven, G. Willow Wilson, this from Jacob Y. I don't know how much more I can ever talk about this book, so that's why it's in Lightning Round. But Wolverine, now he's on the cover in a selfie. It's, uh, <laughs> Kamala's number one pick for a fantasy hero team up bracket. He's on board for a mission to find another missing runaway underground. And we end up with another tie in with the inventor, who's a clone of Thomas Edison in a cockatiel's body. Don't mm-hmm. ask. Don't ask. Just read this book. Great humor, tremendous heroism. Just a super, super book. Continue to read this. Uh, the numbers are very good on this book. What, six printings on number one? Yeah. Just, ah, can't say enough about Ms. Marvel, but I will continue to do so anyway. What's my time like? Hello. You still have a minute left, Bob. Look at that. <laughs> so, Steve, did you want to go into the Wonder Woman, or should I talk about Justice? I kind of want to talk about Justice. It was okay. 
It's just okay. I'd rather read Doc Savage again. Go ahead, Steve. Wonder Woman. You, you, have, you and I have similar takes on this. There's some really hideous poses and some weird faces, and I'd, it undercuts the story to me. Yeah, I, I thought I thought the story was very cool. I loved the idea of Wonder Woman um, speaking to some of the female villains that show up in the story and pretty much just converting them with who she is yeah. and saying, you know, ladies, get in line, stand behind me, and they do so because they don't they don't get treated like that by the people that are around them they don't get the respect right. all of wonder woman's positive attributes get played into them and they buy into it right yeah you know harley quinn lately is she's been going through a lot and and whether it's in you know pretty much since the 52 with all the stuff with the joker being really disappointed by the way that she's been treated and kind of it coming to light she's finally mm-hmm. starting to realize and she wants nothing to do with him even though she still loves him she doesn't want to be controlled by him and Wonder Woman like undoes everything with just a couple of words. Yeah. And I thought that was really nice. But back to the, the point, the art, I thought some pages were beautiful. Other pages were extremely inconsistent. Um, and I don't quite understand how that happens where, you know, Wonder Woman's standing one way and she's just gigantic. And then a couple of pages later, she's, you know, yeah. as small as could be. I don't get it. Some very poor choices. Some very, I, I don't want to characterize the work itself because i'm not an artist mm-hmm. but there are definitely some poor camera angles that play up those differences yeah. and it's really a shame because some of the really emotional moments you pointed out to me were wonder woman's uh, spoiler saves yeah. a child wonder woman saves people which mm-hmm. is yeah. always nice and those work and then there's stuff that doesn't yeah i mean her chest is drawn like six different ways throughout yeah. the issue and i just find it i in something that doesn't normally distract me it really distracted me in, in this book. I wasn't really distracted by the Teen Titans issue. This actually distracted me. I was like, what is going on here? Second story, by the way, we're focusing on the first one. The second story is really, really nice. It's, it's much better art. Lots of, oh, you know, Cat Stags is just amazing. Yeah. You have some great Cersei stuff. It seemed a little predictable for a while. What a great ending. What a super ending that I'm mm-hmm. not going to spoil, but stick around for the post credit sequence. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you guys. I, it's it's weird, too, because Ethan Van Scriver is, is a really great artist. Um, I love the stuff he did with Green Lantern mm-hmm. uh, with Jeff Johns. Um, but, yeah, here it's a little – it's inconsistent. Um, I did like the way they spin uh, Wonder Woman dealing with the, the Gotham villains, how she kind of comes in and goes, like, these guys don't even have powers. Yeah. You know, like, what the hell's wrong with you? And then she has – an immense amount of trouble right. battling them because she's not used to the way that they operate and not, and she's not understanding the way Gotham works. And I, I like that stuff a lot. I thought the stuff with Oracle was, was really yeah. good as well. Um, I thought it was cool to see her back and, and have Gail put some words in her mouth again. Uh, if, if for the last time, um, yeah, it was a cool story. And I, I thought that it had a lot of good moments. I, I think that you're right. I think the art was a little bit inconsistent. Um, mm-hmm. and the last, the second story was good. Uh, I think I, 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 I like her art, but I don't know if it fit for me in a Wonder Woman context. It's a little bit, um, you know, it's, it reminds me of like Fraser Irving type of art where it almost looks like, it almost looks like cutouts, you know, put onto paper in a lot of ways, in a that, weird yeah. way, uh, which I think is a cool way of doing it. But when it comes to like big action scenes, traditional color forms, action scenes, yeah, color forms, yeah. traditional action scenes, I just don't love it as an art style. But I thought the content of the story was also yeah. uh, really yeah. top notch. I think they're both really top notch. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Cool, uh, Steve. Yeah, let's uh, let's do a lightning round. Let's do it. And go. 
All right, so I am uh, continuing to very much enjoy Secret Avengers by Lesh Cott and Michael Walsh. What you have in issue number seven is an absolutely zany uh, Deadpool issue, of all things. Lesh Cott writing Deadpool is, I mean, we talked about, uh, what was it, X-Factor, mm-hmm. Rick Remender's X-Factor. That is, to this day, my favorite. X-Force. De- X- I'm sorry, X-Force. X-Force. Yeah. Thank you, Bobby. Um, my favorite Deadpool that I've read. This is pretty close. This has got to be in the top three. Um, Elesh is constantly breaking the fourth wall in regard to uh, Deadpool and talking directly to him. Some of the interactions are priceless and worth the uh, cover price of $3.99 alone. But on top of that, you've also got some really strange scenarios with Maria Hill and Spider-Woman and a sentient bomb named Vladimir hanging out on the helicarrier. And basically, Spider-Woman being Maria Hill's inside woman, but now starting to learn about MODOK being involved and all the crazy things that are going on. And on top of all these zany things, you've got this kind of kumbaya journey with Hawkeye and Deadpool where they're riding horses and they're singing with, you know, Aim Caballeros in the desert. And then you've got Coulson, who is uh, basically globetrotting all over the place, cross-dressing, uh, it is absolute madness. If you guys aren't checking out uh, Lashkot's Secret Avengers, you really should catch up. It's pretty phenomenal stuff, and it's hysterical. The other book that I want to talk about in Lightning Round is Dead Letters, and this was Dead Letters Volume 1. It collects issues 1 through 4, and this is created and written by Christopher Sabella with art by Chris Visions. Really quick, what this is, is it's a guy named Sam. He wakes up in a strange place with only bits and pieces of his memory, and comes to find that he's involved in a like a, a gang war split into about three different ways. Um, come the issue, the end of issue number one, come to find out that he is actually living now in purgatory. Ooh. And this is a noir story in set in the afterlife of a guy who it's not a double cross, it's not a triple cross, it's actually a quadruple cross. And it gets a little confusing at times. Uh, I didn't wholly love it, but I do want to read it again and found that the story was just very engrossing. I haven't talked about getting a lot for each issue. I felt like I'd sat down with each issue for a good half hour, 40 minutes a piece, just pouring over the information that was given to you really, really well fleshed out and pretty uh, gorgeous to look at at times. Not at all times or a few confusing panels, but overall the world that they set up which is kind of like ours but the deal is i'm probably running out of time i got eight seconds Mm -hmm. you can die in the afterlife but it's only after a series of horrible accidents the end all right check it out (laughs) nice i tried nice um cool stephanie you ready hello bobby hello stephanie i didn't i wasn't gonna forget you don't worry that's okay i don't have a lot to talk about well that's the lightning round so you only have three minutes so. Okay. All right, you ready? And yeah. go. I haven't read much, but I read uh, The Wicked and the Divine, and I can't recall if I already said that I wasn't going to talk about this or if I was. Anyways, I stole it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I kind of felt neither here nor there about it. I really like this series so far, and uh, Jamie and Karen have been doing really cool stuff with it. Um, the art has been fantastic, the colors, everything. But this issue just kind of felt like a bit of a filler issue for me. Like, I kind of felt like nothing really progressed. I mean, stuff happened, but it didn't really lead to anything. So at the end of it, I just kind of felt like, 
shoulder shrug, moving on. Um, let's see. What other things do I have to talk about? Nothing. Um, I read Thomas Elsop number one, which I believe is from Boom. Uh, and it was really interesting. It follows, like, this guy who is, well, Thomas Aesop, who is, I think, the Hand Imagine of the that. Island is what it's called. And basically, the island of Manhattan talks to him and tells him when something supernatural has gone haywire. And it kind of calls him to a certain spot to correct what is happening. Because mm-hmm. the island don't like it. <laughs> so... He's a supernatural detective, and um, one of his friends happened to catch one of his supernatural detectiving things on video, and he became uh, a celebrity. So he's a celebrity supernatural detective, um, and he, you know, he drinks, he does drugs, he parties hard, and he's the hand of the island. Um, the art was really cool. It kind of had a bit of a day tripper feel to it in the terms of like that kind of watercolory look to um the colors and <laughs> the art itself i i thought it was really interesting uh i only read the first issue i think there's two or three issues out i could be wrong there could be more but i thought it was a really interesting premise and i'm interested to see where it goes um i think that's more or less it sex criminals continues to be rad uh, oh my I like- god i died I died on so the book. So good. Amazing. So good. I just like um, how it takes, you know, little side journeys into the character, like what's going on with each character and gives you a look at their mental history kind of and what they're going through, which is something that I don't really think you've ever seen in comics. And despite the fact that it's called Sex Criminals, it really does deal with a lot of stuff that seems very personal to Matt Fraction, uh, particularly... Uh, seen as he's talked about depression and addiction and all this stuff online and it really strikes you as real and you know personal so I think it's been a really interesting look at um, that alright nice Stephanie that was good timing yeah can I throw something in here though yeah Steph uh, Steve and I got going on the uh, sensation comics art. I meant to ask you, had you read Storm Number 2? I know you were iffy about the first one. I wonder if you picked I up did. the second one. Okay. What did you think of the second issue? I like it, but, okay, my problem with the first one was it felt like it didn't really compel you to read on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second issue is sort of the same problem. Like, it feels like a one-off thing. Like, I could skip issue three and four, pick it up at number five, and still know what's going on because nothing really seems to be um, in a story arc, I guess. Like, it just feels like Storm's Adventures in the World, which is fine. I like it a bit better now that I realize that might be what he's doing, Mm -hmm. Um, just these one-off adventures. But again, like, it's not from, you know, a marketing perspective. It's a bit of a weird way to launch... um, a series. I think he's going for let's build little aspects of a character issue by issue. And it's sort thought- of it sort of worked with Black Widow, but there was still an overreaching storyline there mm-hmm. that there mm-hmm. isn't here yet. Yeah, and that's kind of like again, it it to me now that I see where it's kind of going, it's a bit better, but I felt like this one also had a bit too much of her and Wolverine going on like 
I wanted more of the adventure. Like it felt kind of anticlimactic after all this. It almost, again, I keep on talking about world's greatest detective stuff. Um, but, you know, she's doing that sort of Batman, I'm going to solve mysteries and help the world mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but this didn't really feel like something like, aha, she found people. She did this thing. Blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just like, oh, okay, gotcha. moving on. Let's mm-hmm. go make out, Wolverine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, It's it, like the biggest secret of the Marvel Universe that they're dating. Yeah. <laughs> It just felt weird. Gotcha. Like, it, it just didn't feel... Um, didn't do it for you. Yeah, like... Again, I didn't hate it, but... It feels like he's sacrificing a lot of story for kind of frivolous other things. Mm-hmm. So... Gotcha. Will yeah. you buy a third issue? Um, I think I'm going to give it a couple more tries. Um and see if I like it in the third issue and possibly the fourth and maybe just stick with it for like the first uh, okay. volume, mm-hmm. I guess, so to speak. But huge Storm fan. I think she's a good character, but I don't necessarily like her, if that makes right. mm-hmm. Um I don't hate her either, though. So I'm interested to see possibly more of what Greg Greg Pack, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Greg Pack has to offer with Storm, but I don't know. I think I was hoping that this would turn me around and kind of be like, oh my god, I love Storm. How did I never see this side of her? But it's just the Storm that I know just doing things. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> that sums it up. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Yeah. Alrighty, so let's go. To, I'll do my lightning round uh, now. All right, here we go. Lightning round. All right, so Batman and Robin number thirty-four. Uh, Pete Tomasi and um, uh, Patrick Gleason, uh, not Brendan Gleason, because that's an actor. Um, so this is uh, Robin Rises Part Two. And what I've really liked about these last few issues of Batman and Robin, specifically this Robin Rises um, event that they're doing, is that it feels very. Uh, very connected DC universe, very pre-52, especially for Batman, who I feel like in most of the books has been secluded, especially in the ones that I'm reading, Batman and Robin, and um, Scott Snyder's Batman, he's felt like a very secluded character. And here, we not only have the full Bat family, and we deal with issues that happen with, in Death of the Family, uh, but we also have Justice League characters, we also have, you know... Uh, some uh, some some bad guys. It, it just feels, it's just a great feeling, you know? It's fun, and I love the interactions between them and what it's setting up to do. The last page is really, really awesome. Um, seeing him go and Lex Luthor's in it. He does something uh, pretty surprising as well. Very, really, really good though. So uh, I feel like it's, this is the best it's been uh, since uh, the death uh, of Damien. Wow. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it was serious. I was loving to death before that. Uh, and my other book would be daredevil number seven, which I talk about every single month. Um, but this is Mark Wade um, and uh, Javier Rodriguez, who is the colorist. Uh, he does the fill-in issues as well for Daredevil. This is he did this two-part uh, original sin uh, tie-in stuff, and he's actually his last I- issue on the book at all. He's moving on to do other stuff. He's no longer the colors for the book either. But this deals with the original sin. The thing that um, Daredevil saw when uh, you know the, the the Watcher's eye was unleashed was that um, 
you know, his mother basically sitting on the ground uh, with blood in her mouth and his dad standing over her. Ooh. So he, you know, he, he feels, he, he starts to doubt the fact that the kind of the man who has been his hero his whole life maybe wasn't as good a man as he thought. And so he goes to, you know, talk to his mother who happens to be a nun um, who, you know, he's never really, you know, had a relationship with. And she had been protesting outside of Wakandan embassy. Mm-hmm. And wow. and so it was, th- th- she she's taken away to Wakanda because they don't, they're it threatened to uh, reveal secrets uh, that they're that they're working on, and it deals with you know Daredevil in the jungle and all these people, but it also deals with Matt Smarts and him dealing with how to get out of the situation. There's a really good stuff about um, like psychology and, and postpartum depression in yeah, here, I was say something like, like that. really really strong stuff, uh, in, in to deal with social issues um, that most comics don't talk about. Uh, Really, really great issue. It's amazing. Again, the Javier Rodriguez is the fill-in artist for Daredevil because it looks better than most books look um, from the regular artists. Continues to be great. Continues to be emotional. um, But it's going to be fun to see uh, Sam Neen back and and Matt back in San Francisco um, uh, next issue. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are my two. Those are my two. So, in this case, the original Mm -hmm. Sin really does amplify things. It isn't just a useless... Look at this here. It's right. a real story point. The way they deal with it, though, is very interesting because um, the original sin might not be the persons that you think it is. Like it, 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 it plays with the idea of, of these people. It deals with the idea of that these people see these kind of windows into things they forget, but they don't necessarily see the whole picture. And so Matt, being who he is, wants to know the whole picture before he decides you know, what's real mm. and what's not. Uh, really, really great stuff. Continues to be uh, one of the best books out there. Um, yeah. I agree. You like it? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, no, that was a very, very powerful issue uh, dealing with the postpartum depression stuff. I don't believe that I've seen that in comics before. So it was really cool to, to well, not that, that postpartum yeah, depression is cool. So cool, me. man. No, just the way that it was handled. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark Wade did a very good job of not only, it's, I like the idea that this doesn't feel, especially, I haven't read a whole lot of the original Sentai-ins. I've been reading the, I read the Daredevil stuff. And whatever I put uh, the Thor and Loki mm. stuff, but I like that he managed to take the the original sin and kind of spread it out. Like it seems like the Daredevil original sin has more legs mm. than some of the other ones that have been revealed, and it's amounting to some really like deep character development. And it's not just you know it's happening in his world because it's happening everywhere else and we need to do this because this is the big event and you know we're going to take two issues mm-hmm. off to deal with something that in a couple of issues won't matter for mm-hmm. shit and that's not what this is this is taking a character that we've kind of had one vision of and one side of and have always been like you know oh mm-hmm. and then now we find out that she's really complex mm-hmm. and and quite possibly very very damaged yeah but his like his resolve and his the both of them being as strong as they are as people not just him as a hero or her as as you know like a, a protester and a hero mm. of the people but just getting to the core of them like i said as people yeah and that they deal with stuff just like we deal with stuff when they take off the costume they have other things going on in their minds you can't be daredevil all the time you can't always be the nun that stands against the wall and holds hands mm-hmm. you know there there's reasons yeah. i just i love the idea that some of these original sins are extrapolated into these much larger character pieces yeah and there's this great scene between the two of them where she's talking about how she 
picked herself up after she kind of fell and why she does what she does. And it's kind of the perfect explanation of why Matt does what he does. Mm -hmm. And she goes like, I know that sounds crazy. And he goes, no, it makes perfect sense. Well, he's always (laughs) talking about how, you know, I'm I'm like my pop. I'm like my pop. And we find out you're, you've got some of your mother in you as well. Yeah. And also Mark, we tweeted this this week. He is now the writer with the longest uninterpreted run of daredevil ever. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I hope he stays on it. Yeah. No, in, no yeah. interruptions. I think he's at like 42 issues now or something like that. So it's pretty impressive um, considering that people have written Daredevil in the past. Yeah. Always on and off though. So, yeah, yeah, always on and yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. All right. So let's go to our books of the week. Okay. Bob, what do you got for us? Starting with X Factor number 12. It's Peter David Carmine Dijon Demonico. Bob, all new X Factor. All 12. new, all new, all now <laughs> X Factor number 12. Uh, Carmen D. Uh, D. Jean Domenico, Lee Lafferge on colors, and Corey Pettit on the letters. Now, after the confrontation over the last couple of issues with Memento Mori and the rescue of Georgia Dakai from the clutches of her supervillain dad, this is a, a catch-your-breath issue, smaller story, and no one's better at this than Peter David is. X-Factor is going to have a press conference held by Harrison Snow and Linda Kwan, and if you know your X-Factor history, press conferences don't go very well with them. They don't mix well with the Fourth Estate. Uh, they had an alien invasion and Guido calling himself strong guy and all the rest of it way back when. And the centerpiece here is this bit. And that's wonderful. But what we have lots of are little vignettes that highlight each of these characters in turn. And so each stop-off gives you something new and never feeling... Ooh, look at what I'm doing here. It just sort of flows betwixt and between. So you get to see... I actually had to write this all down because there's too much of it. <laughs> what You start with Gambit and Harrison Snow hashing out the problems they had with, well, Gambit sleeping with his wife and then Snow leaving him behind with the magic transportation device <laughs> at the hands of his enemies. And it manages to work itself out pretty much. We, we get... Doug Ramsey and Georgia, who's now in a new situation. She went from living in the penthouse to living as not the prisoner of X-Factor, but stuck in some superhero headquarters, and she's lost her mom and dad over the last couple of issues. Lovely interplay between the two AI characters, Danger and Warlock, who share their own little special moment. Hmm. Who knew? Who (laughs) knew Warlock could actually, well, A, speak in pronouns, which is interesting, which is really, really charming. And then what that all pales in comparison to we get Quicksilver and Havoc at the beginning and Quicksilver's end sequence that will really make you think about his character differently than you ever have before. Ooh. I'm not going to say too much. He's been a real jerk for the better part of two decades. And something happens here that's, wow, this is... I like this. Is there any word on the uh, Volume 2 trade for that book? You're probably looking next year, knowing Marvel. I mean, we're already nine months into this year, so this is issue 12. That mm. far out, really? A three months for a trade for them isn't, I don't think, completely hmm. out of character, but we'll have to check in. See, as people know, I got a lot of folks around here reading the other X-Factor, and I was a really big fan. And when this series began, I was... A little hesitant because I was so enamored of those other folks and uh, what's going to happen here. I don't love these people. I do now. Mm. I am to the point that this is one of the books that I now look most forward to reading when it comes out. So I should have had more faith in Peter, but I did. I kept buying it and it has 
completely been rewarded. So those people who dropped off, whether I had anything to do with it or not, you might want to try this again. And as Steve says, maybe it's time for the first trades out. Yeah. So there should be a second trade coming, but you October may October 28th. A- okay. Hey, hey. Today, so much faster than I thought. So try that X Factor number 12. All new. All now. <laughs> X Factor number 12. All Factor. All Factor. <laughs> that means smell, doesn't it? it? Does. All factory. It does. We're going yes. to, and we're going back in the past now, aren't we? Oh uh, yes, we're doing this again. Just uh, excuse me while I pick up a really heavy book. You mentioned last week that you were gonna, you were talking about the oldest book anyone's ever talked about, and now you've really kind of yes. lapped that by a ton. Yes, I have. Here's the thing. At this point now, unless I talk about the Yellow Kid from 1897 or cave paintings, I can't go any earlier than I am now because with the release this week of IDW's Little Nemo Return to Slumberland. I have decided to talk about the original Little Nemo in Slumberland by Windsor McKay, which first saw print on October 15th, 1905. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For people who don't know or who just sort of know the name, Windsor McKay was born in 1867, completely untrained as an artist, as a young boy, just picked up a pencil and started drawing. Caught the attention of folks. Just locally, he then began drawing posters for circuses and freak shows before he found a newspaper job. And that was at the New York Herald, where he drew some things like Little Sammy Sneeze and The Dreams of the Rare Bit Fiend, which was about a fellow who would fall asleep each night and have these really bizarre dreams from eating very rich food at the end of the, of the night. I like that title. And weird things that happened. Giant mosquitoes, his house would fly away and all sorts of that crazy That sounds really stuff. cool. And if you pick up that black and white book down there, Steve, there's some Dreams of the Rare Bit Fiend in there if you look at the index. <laughs> Uh, Mr. McKay, whose art is staggeringly detailed, beautifully rendered, filled with movement and odd perspectives, literally a movie maker, which he would end up being. He decided that the Rarebit Fiend, which was for grown-ups in, in the Sunday funnies, he wanted something for kids. So he decided to turn that whole dream idea around and created Little Nemo in Slumberland. It's a little boy who is, in the first episode, called by an oomp sent by Morpheus, the king of Slumberland, to bring him there so that his daughter, the princess, had someone to play with. And it takes about six months for them to meet, and in between, uh, Nemo meets Flip, who's this crazy character who's running around doing sort of Looney Tunes cartoon stuff. He's very mischievous. Mm -hmm. Uh, The royal physician, Dr. Pill, They end up going to see Jack Frost. They go to Mars. They visit the land of Mother Goose and do about a year with various characters over there. The artwork in the book, the vistas presented of cityscapes and buildings and architectural details, absolutely perfect, and then twisted sideways as we we walk through Befuddle Hall, which is actually upside down. And it's the, the... Picture the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, but as if that's the floor and not the ceiling. <laughs> Just beautifully emotional, wonderful stuff. It's been reprinted a lot of times now over the years. I have a rather large-scale edition of this, and it's not nearly big enough. When I showed it to Bobby before, I had to bring out my magnifying glass because you can't read the the word balloons. I have a couple of books so like small. that, and it's kept me from reading yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Now, Nemo himself is actually based on Windsor McKay's son, Robert, he posed for his father a couple of times. He built him a throne so he could sit on to get these right. If you love Mobius, 
his art has a lot in common with that. J.H. Williams, to a certain extent, Peter, Peter Max and the op artist from the 60s. And we, he went from this. McKay actually then started animating. There's a Little Nemo cartoon from 1911. There was one in the 80s, too, that Miyazaki worked on briefly. Yep. But in 1911, there weren't cell, there weren't, you know, celluloid mm-hmm. plastic cells to draw on. It was drawn on rice paper and cardboard, and Windsor McKay drew 4,000 pictures <laughs> to draw Little Nemo. <laughs> if you get a chance to see one of these limited editions, they, again, there have been a number of them. Find the biggest one you can to, to take a look at the original Little Nemo. Now, the new one was quite charming. Frankly, I was surprised. I was figuring to come on here and scream and yell. And <laughs> well, no, I, here's the thing, honestly. This is a, the original Nemo, when he it, when it changed papers and went over to Hearst and went to the American, they changed it to In the Land of Wonderful Dreams because the, the strip stayed behind at the Herald. Eventually, uh, McKay got the rights back for a buck, got his own strip back. It's one of those things that is so the work of one person that only you can only see one person doing Nemo. In the case here of Gabriel Rodriguez from Lock and Key, as written by Eric Schanauer, they are they are tempting the spirit without trying an imitation. Mm-hmm. There's one double page double page spread of Slumberland that has McKay all over it, but they have really tried to create their own space within his world. And the story does pick up with them still looking. For, they're looking for a new Nemo as a playmate because, as the princess says, I haven't had so much fun since the last one. <laughs> we have some very special McKay moments here too. The sort of walking bed, the fact that every now and again, every Nemo strip would end with him falling into his own bed. The, the, the sort of dream we all have of falling and mm. plop. Well, he really does fall and plop into his bed, and he calls for his mom, and they do that about four times here. Really charming. This I don't know if this is an ongoing. Hmm. They're talking about the next one and two and being ominous about it. I have the funny feeling that at least get enough for a trade. But do yourself a favor. Pick up the new one. Pick up the old one. And just engross yourself in comic book history. Yeah, talk about... I mean, talk about detailed art. I mean, you showed me the, the old stuff, but looking at uh, Rodriguez stuff in a modern context, I don't know how it could be an ongoing. Cause I don't know how you could do this detailed no. in art on a monthly basis. It just does not, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's that's gorgeous. The, that's the spread we're talking about. It's unbelievably gorgeous. Just opened it up. And you can see, the interesting thing is, uh, you can see in the faces, I think, of the characters, the 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 Gabriel Rodriguez style, like mm-hmm. the lock and key type of look to it for their faces. But if, other than that, I mean, it's a completely different visualization of his work than he was doing there. Um, and I haven't got a chance to read it. I just looked through the, the illustrations. Mm-hmm. But I, it, it's a gorgeous book to look at if mm-hmm. nothing else yeah. now i just have one caveat about the original mm-hmm. you have to remember it's a hundred years old more right, than a hundred years old there is a character that nemo meets they're sailing around the world and they come to africa and they find a whole tribe of regular native africans mm-hmm. and they are running around as jungle people it's a stereotype but it is never done maliciously there's no offense meant eventually the little one of the little fellows named impy tags along with them and continues for the next 20 years doing silly things participating in the action has his own agency for a character who only appeared once a week but it, it, at the the time it was done you're dealing with american imperialism and you're dealing with white man's burden and us lumping our culture onto other people 
but as opposed to so many other artists of that time who drew horrendous, horrendous caricatured characters. That is not the case here. He is a joyous little fella, having all the same fun the rest of them are. He's in the same way the little rascals were mm. in the 30s. It's that sort of thing. So if you open it up and look at it, it is not, as much as I love Will Eisner, it's not looking at Ebony from the spirit that now you can't look at it without going, oh, I need some arm's length mm. distance from it. That is not the case here. But right. it is something to be aware of. Yeah. Well, it's like I always say when you, when you watch uh, King Kong, Yes, the, the well, Asian character. Yes. It's like you know, yeah, Charlie. If yeah. you, it's it's in today's context, and even that, it's incredibly offensive. I mean, yes. but you have to be able to take it as the, the the as a history piece, you know, more than anything else. This is, it's not acceptable, but it was acceptable then, and you have to be able to watch it in some sort of context. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing with stuff yeah. like this. Where you're thinking it's 1905, you can't hold it to the same standards you hold stuff to now, just because it's already been done and it's right. And in the in the context of what was coming out in 1905, yeah, I don't want to say this is advanced sociologically. Mm. Don't get me wrong, but it's miles ahead of a lot of the other things. If you see, there are now huge collectibles and what's called mm. African American artifacts right. from this period. And he, Impy, is mm. kind of benign, right? Absolutely. Okay, so that's uh, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. <laughs> Little Nemo, uh, Return of the Summerland is a new book. Um, Windsor McKay's Little Nemo in Slumberland. Yes. The original. Yeah. Um, the first time I ever heard of that was that video game for the NES. The NES. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Never yeah. saw that. I don't even rem- I don't really remember it anymore. Like I remember the the art on the, of you, the cover and stuff. It's Little Nemo story. All the yeah. characters are there, and he has a magic wand and can basically assume the guise of he's in suits. So he's like a frog. Or huh. what have oh, you? Yeah, that's right. And he uses those different suits to traverse the dream world. That's right. That's nice. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's right. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. I'll have to do that a, for talking games. Oh, yeah. it's a great they, game. I was like, in, when I was a kid, I was entranced by like the the art of the yeah. cover and, and the instruction booklet and stuff like that. Yeah. When we eventually do like a Nintendo showcase mm-hmm. or something, or you know, top ten mm-hmm. games that will be mm-hmm. in my list. Spoiler. Call me in for that um, one. Yeah, mm-hmm. I absolutely loved. Uh, little Nemo for the NES when yeah. it was out. That was my game. Yeah. Did you get to read the comic? Oh, I loved it. Okay. I absolutely loved it. If you didn't pick that for for part of your books of the week, it definitely would have been in my pile. Um, the artwork is just jaw droppingly gorgeous, and I liked the I liked the way it started. I thought you know Nemo will get pulled into Slumberland, and it'll be just like the other stories because I've been talking recently. Like when I talked about the thief of always and mm-hmm. him being, you know, whisked away into this like fairy tale land type of place, I thought like, you know, we're gonna get started. He'll be, you know, coerced into going to this place and then it'll be adventures. It doesn't really start like that. He's a little kid that this is all very new to him and he's very hesitant. And it happens over a series of different nights and sometimes weeks. Mm-hmm. And I I love that just from a storytelling perspective of easing him into the idea of him being comfortable and curious about this world because at first he's very he doesn't want anything to do with it he's scared play with a girl yeah no i'm not doing that (laughs) he's frightened because he's like well it's a dream so i'll I'll go along with it and i'll just wake up and whatever but as the nights go by he starts to miss it and he he's wondering you know why haven't they come to get me i want to dream about slumberland and when he realizes that it's real uh, it the story just takes on a whole new face, and I can't wait to see where it goes. I don't know how long it is, but this is something I'll be picking up every issue. Cool, awesome, Steve. Your books of the week. We, uh, let's talk about the uh, the single issue first. Let's talk about yeah, yeah. Let's the do fade it. out. All right. So um, 
a new story and presentation from Mr. Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips called The Fade Out. Number one came out this past Wednesday. And uh, colors by Elizabeth Breitweiser. Edits by David Brothers. What you've got here is a kind of like a Radioland Murders type of situation. Um, anybody that's read uh, Fatal or Criminal or any of, uh, you know, Brew Baker and Sean Phillips collaboration comics, you'll kind of already know the vibe and, and the world that they seem to just have a really, really great synergy with one another. And they, they're both very comfortable in this arena and they play with it in different ways. Uh, here you have the story of Charlie Parrish, who is a screenwriter on a film that's currently being filmed. And he basically, he went to a Hollywood party uh, of this guy, Earl Rath. He's the movie, he's the star of the show and he's kind of a sleaze and womanizer. He's got the little mustache making him look all dastardly and stuff. Looks a little like Ed Wood. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, so Charlie wakes up and he's like, well, you know, what happened last night? And he's only remembering tiny little bits and pieces and comes to find the other, the co-star, uh, Valeria Somers, is dead in his living room. Ooh. So that sucks. And he... Well, it's dead in her living room. In her living room. Yeah, he wakes up in her house. He wakes up. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even worse. That'd, it'd be harder to, to get away, not get away with it, but harder to keep it under wraps if it was in his living room. I forgot where he woke up. Yeah. He, well, he didn't know where he woke up. All right. Well, <laughs> then, oh, well yeah. how the hell am I supposed to know? <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's one of those, it turns into one of those whodunit uh, kind of stories, but it's like it's entrenched in this really rich world of this old Hollywood that it's got, it's totally got that. I don't want to say cliched, uh, vibe, but when you think of, you know, like mobsters in Hollywood or, you know, the fat director and the, you know, the pretty secretary and the, the soup, like the street tough security guy, you know, where are you going Mac? And all of that kind of stuff. It's all here, and it's all expertly done by Brubaker and and Phillips. And I mean, like I said, if you loved those other stories, this is right up your alley. It's going to be a story about figuring out what is what. And there's even, I can't tell if this is going to be a part of the story, but there might be some supernatural elements to this. Not 100% on that. There's like one page, this one right here, you can see Bobby, where hmm. he ha Charlie has a vision. And I can't tell if this is going to eventually be part of the story. Are we going to go supernatural with this? Or is this straightforward? Here are our players. How did it happen? Kind of things. I already have my suspect and my suspicions, but I have a feeling that I will be wrong in the end. And I'm perfectly okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, just content to let this ride out and go along for the ride and hopefully don't fall too far behind in it like I did with Fatal. Um, but yeah... And also the other thing is the way that they paint Hollywood um, after Valeria is found, let's just say the news story of how she died is spun into this complete, putting a completely different face on it, which kind of throws Charlie um, out of whack because he keeps finding little bits and pieces that make him are making him believe that maybe he had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. And he really has no idea, doesn't remember has the best of intentions, even though he's trying to, you know, keep himself out of out of the spotlight of the whole thing. 
Uh, it's mystery on top of mystery. And if you're in the mood for that kind of thing, the fade out number one is a really great place to uh, start and look for that. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has, like, there's certain, obviously, certain touchdowns you always go back to. I mean, it definitely has that LA Confidential type vibe to it where, you know, I, I, I the Black Dahlia type of uh, vibe, not the De Palma movie, just like right. that case. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that I think uh, the LA in this time period is a fascinating place to base stories, which is why people base stories there all the time because it deals in, in, in two things that are highly, highly attractive to people, which are beautiful people mm-hmm. and conspiracies and corruption. You know, those are the two things that are rampant here in this story as well as in th- that history of that city. So yeah. I think that it, it's fertile ground for a story and it's what Brubaker and Phillips do best. Right. So it, it but I think that it, the mystery that's unraveling and kind of how you're kind of in the the in the head of you're not even actually it's it's actually a third person narration, but you're kind of you're kind of following this one character, and yet you don't even know if you can trust yeah what's happening with him because he can't trust what's happening with him. Huh? So I, I think that they're playing it off really really well. You know, I, we'll see how it's out. I this doesn't feel to me like it's going to have supernatural elements, but again, I. Fatal didn't feel it that way either right away, and it right. kind of went there very strongly. So. Yeah, like I said, it's it's one page mm-hmm. that has a supernatural element. I don't know if maybe that's just a representation that could have been a, a dream sequence. Yeah, I think and that's what it was. Yeah, and it's just, you know, the, the faceless people in your lives or the people you don't remember that mm-hmm. they turn around and there's nothing there, but they're, you know, just these horrible apparitions yeah. of, of people. Yeah, I mean, I've personally have always been kind of fascinated by that vibe. Like it, this might sound like a really weird comparison, but I, I can't think of anything else. Maybe Bob will help me, but the who framed Roger rabbit, like them on the set, I like forget the cartoon characters and everything, but the whole Eddie Valiant and the mm-hmm. director and just being on the Hollywood set and all the people milling about, and you don't know who could have been there, who, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't even know if you can trust the secretary who seems to play a pretty, you know, prominent role. Who knows? Maybe she was jealous. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'd have to read to find out. But yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things that if, if you're in the mood, or you just like what Ed, Brood, what Ed Brubaker does, especially with Sean Phillips, uh, it's a really, really cool book mm-hmm. to check out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we did on our fanboy film school, uh, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, that's yeah, in that yes. sort of period. Yes. Uh, Hollywood Land, certainly the mm-hmm. yep. Ben Affleck movie yeah. by George Reeves set in that sort of time frame. Yeah. Um, I was actually going to throw something to Stephanie really quick because I know that she is a Brubaker fan. I am. Uh, <laughs> are you going to have you checked this out or are you going to check it out? I, I have it on my iPad. I just haven't nice. had a chance to read it. Busy times. No. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I definitely I, I think you would dig it. I remember like I got really excited. It was one of the big things I was stoked about after Image Expo and him talking about it. And he, Brubaker had said, I believe it was his uncle who like worked in Hollywood and would tell him stories all the yeah, time. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like heavily influenced by that. And I'm, he just, the way he spoke about it, it seemed different from uh, like his other projects. Cause it seemed weirdly personal too. like he was weaving in personal stories with fiction so i kind of got the impression that this would kind of be one of those books where you didn't know what was real and what was made up so yeah mm-hmm yeah other book other other book that i want to talk about my absolute 
absolute book of the week. Uh, I went back into my comic room and went into the stacks and decided to pull out uh, Power Girl. And uh, this is from Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray with art by Amanda Connor and colors by Paul Mounts and letters by John J. Hill. Now, we've uh, I got a couple of tweets. Uh, people saw me that I was reading this and they were asking me some things. I'm going to ask Bob to step in in a minute, but I'm just going to read you this really quick recap because um, I got a lot of tweets saying, you know, all I know about Power Girl is the boob window. <laughs> That's it. That's all I know. So I'm sure Bob can, can you know, build upon this, but I'll read you this really quick. Uh, Power Girl is the sole survivor of a dead universe. Kara Zor-El uh, is blessed with Kryptonian gifts of super strength, flight, super speed, invulnerability, x-ray vision, heat vision, freezing breath, and super hearing. While the world knows her as Karen Starr, the CEO of newly reopened Starware Industries, her enemies know her as Power Girl. So, Bob, she is the Earth 2 version of Supergirl? Except she's slightly older. There you go. Now, it's all pre-crisis, pre-zero hour, pre-infinite crisis. <laughs> First appears in 1976, All-Star Comics number 58. And it's right here. And it's right here. Uh, created by Jerry Conway, Wally Wood, and Rick Estrada. And she begins life with the Justice Society. And she's the young kid who they all, some of them look down on, oh, come on, you're just Superman's cousin. We don't mm-hmm. need you around. And she was, hey, back off, Buster. I, I got plenty for everybody. And she really <laughs> takes no crap. She wants to race the Flash. Mm-hmm. She needs to prove herself. She's always had attitude. Yeah. And that carried through all issues of this. Uh, there were 16 issues of this. Then there was the DC implosion. Some books got canceled. They told some other stories. The Huntress first appears in issue 69, and their friendship happens right away. And Huntress mm-hmm. in Earth 2 is the daughter of Catwoman and Batman. Mm. Ah. So sort of the way it was in Birds of Prey, the television show as opposed to Helena Bertinelli. Uh, she had a couple of miniseries. They played around with her origin once there was an Earth 2 after the crisis. Now she was the creation of Atlantean sorcerers. <laughs> and she was really thousands of years old, and it all was Whoa. really kind of lousy. <laughs> there is a really nice Joe State miniseries for a while, but where this all changes, just before this Power Girl series, in JSA Classified, which is issues one, two, three, and four, it's Jeff Johns with Jimmy and Amanda. They fix all the parts of her origin for the old 52. Mm-hmm. And all those things that are in that little lead to yeah. are there, but you get to see how that happens. So those are ones to look for as well. Cover of the first one is a lovely Adam Hughes piece, which mm-hmm. is also the cover of the trade. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I really loved so much about this is, I mean, I'll get to the character in a minute, but I really loved how inviting the, the whole mm-hmm. thing was. Like the vibe of the book was just fun right from the start. And there's like tiny little stories too, like one issue, two issues, three issues. You don't really have to get involved in anything super long. Things don't go on forever. You get really funny, quippy, action-packed stories and, you know, two-issue spots. So, I mean, the first story starts out with a series of like mechanical, they're not, are they aliens? Yeah. All right, mechanical so aliens. They look <laughs> they look like big daddies from Bioshock, and they're coming down out of the sky, and they're basically broadcasting this algorithm that 
almost like a chemical attack turns all of the citizens of Manhattan into raving lunatics. They're all attacking one another. And Power Girl decides that, you know, hey, this is my town and you can't do this. Decides to go and find out what the uh, what the deal is and runs into a nasty, uh, nasty guy named the Ultra Humanite. Which is yep. a half monkey, half man, basically a, a giant albino gorilla with a genius's brain mm-hmm. inside. You know, comics. Yeah, 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 well, yeah. He goes back to the golden age. Yeah, yeah. he's an old character. Well, he he he's was an Earth uh, two he was very sick yeah. from from a young age. He was super advanced, and then he ended up basically to buy himself more time, put his brain inside of this uh, giant gorilla, and he's got he's kind of stuck in there for a while, and decides that he needs a vessel he's going to transplant his brain once again but who do you use to do so and he takes an interest in power girl and decides that he's going to capture her and hold manhattan hostage basically he he sends out these giant cables they smash into the ground and they rip all of manhattan apart and up into the sky and he's holding it for ransom and it says if you don't give me your body you, I'm gonna drop Manhattan, and everybody will die, and it will be mm-hmm. your fault. Um, Power Girl is, like I said before, before we started the show, it is the best thing that I've read since my my favorite last best thing that <laughs> I read. I my eyes lit up. I was laughing. I, I had tears in my eyes from laughter. I love the complexity of the character herself of that because of her outfit and because of the way that a lot of people within her within her universe view her she's very much objectified by pretty much any male that she meets the way that she comes back at them and puts them in her in their place is amazing the writing is genius it's everything that you want to hear coming from this you know incredibly beautiful character that's just got so much to say and so much to stand for you know, for for all things, not just for mm-hmm. women, but for for being a hero and and everything. And like I said, the stories are are really quick. She fights this like Godzilla like monster mm-hmm. at some point. He's about to eat her. She just headbutts him in the face like it's no <laughs> thing. Um, there's these three crazy aliens that That's come down. One. Yeah, it really is. All they all they want to do is party. And uh, one of them, you know, lands in like Central Park or something like that. And one of power girls things which i think is really interesting about her is she's kind of reckless in a way Mm -hmm. she'll punch things first and ask questions later and it kind of bites her in the ass when she goes to attack their ship she is like how do i get into this thing ah screw it i'm just gonna rips it apart and some of the nuts and bolts fall from the ship and plunk down on one of the the women that's now on their planet on her head and her gun goes off and takes off the head of a criminal that was being arraigned by by a police officer. And, I mean, that was Power Girl's <laughs> fault. Guy got his head blown off. But the way that it's handled is just, it's so much fun. You know, like, I, I sometimes have, have bagged on DC for being, you know, dark and this and that. This is bright, it's colorful, it's fun. Uh, she reminds me of like the Carol Danvers of the DC universe of that, that first arc with Kelly Sue, just straight up fun and sassy and plucky and all whole bunch of adjectives to describe a fun hero. Um, 
I could go on and on. I highly recommend this to anybody that can find the trades, find the single issues, do whatever you got to do. If you've been loving Captain Marvel, if you just love kick-ass female heroes in general, you have got to check out, uh, um, I'm sorry, Justin Gray? Yes. Yes. Justin Gray, Jimmy Palmiotti, and Amanda Connors, Power Girl. Bob, would you care to say anything before we go? Yes, this was one of the sad books that was part of the first curse when (laughs) DC canceled (laughs) the old 52, as well as at the same time, the Paul Dini Zatanna was running. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stefan Mm -hmm. Ruan art and a lot of that. And just really fun books in this, and that was in the same vein as this. Mm-hmm. And they just sort of went away, and maybe that's changing. Which yeah. we've, we're going to hear from our guests, or have we heard from our guests? No, we haven't heard from yet, Bob. Haven't heard from them yet. <laughs> um, just one more thing before sure. before I shut up. Uh, lots of like some of the stuff that we talk about on the show that we really love of not quiet moments, but some of those like let's take a step back, let's take a break, let's take an issue and just go to the movies and have mm-hmm. several pages yeah. of them just heroes just having fun on their off time and getting sucked into an adventure anyway like oh come on man this is supposed to be my day yeah. off and you there is no day off and her her role her 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 dual personality of running the business versus being power girl and having to at a moment's notice switch from hero to respectable business owner and adds up to some absolutely just uproarious even her costume change moments are hysterical Mm -hmm. so yeah if you want to be really entertained uh and you haven't checked out power girl i cannot recommend it enough it was wonderful and i'm I'm gonna read the whole rest of the run that's my my mission from now until next podcast one one quick last thing yeah it's on youtube i'm sure uh chris soda real i believe his name is pronounced i'm not quite so sure did a fan film called power girl the classifieds Mm. where she basically gets put on hiatus by the Justice League for being a little reckless and wrecking some stuff. Mm -hmm. And she has to go get a real job. So picture Power Girl running the help desk, the return desk at a computer company. (laughs) It doesn't go very well. And it's it's really quite something special. Uh, Again, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Give it a shot. I liked the, uh, the story where there's a girl that finds a magical book and all she's all she knows about fantasy is from playing dungeons and dragons mm-hmm. so you have a dungeons and dragons inspired villain who is calling all of these wild beasts including a godzilla like monster from this book that she owns and power has to take the book away from her it's a riot it's an absolute riot all right awesome awesome so that's uh how many one through seven you were uh, one through 12, through 12 is the is the uh gray and connor run and then it continues with uh judd winnick and who judd does winnick. art a uh, couple of different people is uh, out of my okay. head at the moment okay um and the fade out number one was the other book obviously. yes all right stephanie why don't you tell us a little bit about uh gen con yeah i will um so i apologize for any of you who also listen to misfits and you've heard this already, but the reason I wasn't on the show for the last couple of weeks is I was away for a convention, and um, that convention was Gen Con in Indianapolis. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with Gen Con, it's not a comic convention. It is a board game convention, or I guess more like tabletop gaming, because, you know, there's card games and mm-hmm. all other cool things that happen, but it's been going on for ages, and... Um, I wound up going because my boss, Bill, 
um, he was there as a part of uh, Gen Con has started a writer symposium. So they bring in a wide variety of authors and they do panels about like the process and uh, that sort of thing and have signings and blah, blah, blah. So Bill was one of the authors that uh, went to go check that out. And he's a big tabletop gamer too. So he's kind of uh, like, yes, like the best of two worlds. I get to like <laughs> do gaming stuff. I haven't done that in a long time. And I also get to like talk about like my craft. So um, there was like Jim Butcher was there as well. And Scott Westerfield who writes like the uglies. And there was a really big, famous uh, fantasy author, female, and I can't remember her name. I want to say Melissa something, but I think I'm wrong. So, <laughs> um, anyways, uh, it was weird, though, because normally, you know, I go to these shows and I'm traveling with Bill and I get him to panels and I get him to signings. And that's kind of my gig is to go around and make sure things run smoothly and to kind of be a liaison. But all the panel rooms were right beside each other. And, like, the signing stuff was all in one spot. So Bill was, like, I gave him, like, the itinerary. And he's, like, yeah, I'm good. Bye. And I'm, like, oh. what do you want? What? <laughs> do, you, do you want to, should I come back? Do I want me to come to? He's, like, no, no, go wander. Go check it out. And I'm, like, <laughs> so, you know, the, the, sh- the convention's four days long. So it's Thursday till Sunday, which is pretty big. Like, I mean, two-day shows are civilized three-day shows are acceptable and four-day shows are just like what why (laughs) um so by like friday i was like is it sunday yet but um you know it was so different i mean it's it's the same and it's different at the same time words are hard anyways (laughs) but you know they have an exhibitor hall that's filled with just booths and booths and booths of people promoting their board games idw was there valiant was there um and I think even Boom, technically, because they had a Bravest Warriors game going on that was, like, based from the comics. Um, but Valiant had board games, and IDW had an X-Files board game, a Chew board game, and a board game for Kill Shakespeare. But wow. none of them brought their comics. There were comics booths. And you would think that there would be a natural crossover, but none of them brought any comics for promotion, which hmm. felt so weird to me. Hmm. But anyways... Um, there was still like a ton of cosplay, um, and I was like really like alarmed by all of the like weird blackface cosplay, and I was like, "This is not okay." Hmm. Uh, but apparently, they're just dark elves, which somehow makes it okay. <laughs> I don't know, but it was it was really weird. And they had like bards, like they had like a stage, and bards would play, and they had like this giant. These people made giant balloon creatures. Oh, you must have loved that. No, I was not happy. <laughs> I had to walk by it at one point in time. And at the end of the show, they pop all the balloons and everyone's like, yay! And I was like, no, 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 no. my worst nightmare. That's my worst nightmare. I would figure that you would love, not not you, but that Stephanie would love the killing of the balloons. No, I don't like the noise. Yeah, that, um, same thing for me. I hate that noise. Like, I when I look at a, a, like a bunch of balloons, all I see is... anxiety. Yes, all I get is anxiety because all I hear in my head is them popping, even that's, when even when they're together. Yeah, Steph. that's me too. That's why I get really anxious around balloons, like I the popping noise and yeah. stuff. Like it, I hate it. How do you deal with like the Thanksgiving Day parade? Well, they're not they're not balloons, but come on. I don't think like oh my that's god, not, they're giant. No. Like the hedgehog is gonna make a huge popping noise. <laughs> yeah, it's if different. Those pop, they don't like pop yeah they like, go like, like so awesome when they yeah. leak and like yeah. throughout the show they're just no um, but 
but they have like all these other cool things too. Like they had, um, you could build card houses and this whole section was like, you built the tallest card houses and it was everywhere. And people just, you know, sat there for ages making these towers. Like they look like the two towers from like Lord of the Rings and shit. (laughs) And then on Saturday night, people fling money at them to knock them all down. And the money all goes to charity at the end. Nice. I was like, Oh, but what about my tower? I didn't build one, but (laughs) I would have been sad. And, you know, panels are still going on and all this other cool stuff, but panel rooms are also devoted to uh, game demoing. So there's just a ton of people that are teaching you how to play games, Mm -hmm. um, which was really neat. I I was waiting for a friend in one room um, because she was a demoer, and this guy, this stranger, bullied me into playing a game called Avalon um, with, actually, uh, our listener, Courtney. I met up with her and oh, wandered cool. around with her for a little bit. Um, and she, her and my friend Chris were with me, and we all got kind of bullied into playing Avalon um, with this weird dude who was kind of a bully. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was like, what? it was this deception game. Uh, so you want to lie, like, two people are, like, evil and then the rest of, like, you're going on these missions, and you want the missions to succeed if you're good, but if you're evil, you want them to fail. But yeah. he didn't explain that to us, like, that we had to, like, really, and then he'd be like, well, I'm good, so this person must be evil. And it was like, what? But, mm. it, like, he just made, he was horrible. He was so yeah. weird. There's a bunch of games like that, like, the Resistance is a game like that. Yeah, that was actually, Resistance was one of the games that was being demoed in the room. Yeah. And we started playing that, but then he was like, I like Avalon better. <laughs> like, okay. Um, but anyways, so we played that for a bit with him. I was evil. I did not win, though, because he did not (laughs) explain the game well at all. Um, but that was the first game I'd played, like, and that wasn't until Saturday, I think. Um, but Thursday and Friday, I was kind of, like, really overwhelmed with just taking everything in. Like, again, one room is, like, the exhibitor halls, and, you know, it's not typical exhibitor booths, because they're trying to cram tables into like their exhibitor space so that they can demo stuff in there too. Um, and then, you know, people who are working the booths are trying to not sell you stuff necessarily. I mean, they are, but they're bringing people in so that they can explain how a game works and show them and have people play them. So it's a really different dynamic than uh, trying to sell a comic. Mm-hmm. Um, but then another room, which is, was probably, you know, just as big, if not bigger, um, was just empty tables so that people could game and it was like tournaments and all this other crazy stuff and you know then there was an entire massive hall that was dedicated just to Pathfinder and it was packed nonstop. it was crazy and then people around the clock like 24 hours a day games like went on and panels went on and gaming tournaments went on 24 hours a day and people would be sitting in the hallways everywhere just playing games around the clock if they weren't at like an, an official event. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. It's just absolutely mind-boggling to watch these people just come and, you know, just hang out. Um, but like, I was kind of, I wasn't like gawking, but I was kind of like just mesmerizing, kind of taking everything in and being like, what is happening? This is so weird. <laughs> Um, but we wandered around with Courtney and, um, she, we went to this booth, the Aiello booth. It's 
I-E-L-L-O. Um, and she wanted this game called King of New York. And then she, she was telling us what it is. And it's like the sequel to a game called The King of Tokyo. Um, and in this game, uh, you're it's almost exactly what it sounds like. The board is so simple. It's just Tokyo that's being destroyed. And there's like a little circle in it. And you get to play as monsters. Wow. And you're playing <laughs> Bob's eyebrows just went up. Yeah. So there's like there's like a cyborg bunny that's just in a big <laughs> robotic suit and there's like a Godzilla and there's a giant Cthulhu. Oh, um, oh, there it is. And there's like mecha there's a mecha dinosaur or a mecha dragon. Um yes. and there's there's a bunch of other ones too, but basically you're rolling dice and you can either like attack or uh you can get money, or you can heal, or you can just uh, try and earn victory points to be the king of Tokyo. And while you're earning victory points, you're also like uh, doing hit points to other monsters because you want to be the one that rules Tokyo and destroys it for themselves. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> what other so, point is there? So if you earn money, you can get, um, you can buy. I think they're technically called like energy cubes, but you can buy cards and they add on like extra either damage or they just do unique things. Atomic breath or something. Yeah, they have that. That has the one called like, I think there was like, uh, there's like an extra head and it gives you like extra hit points and all this (laughs) other really cool stuff. Um, And the new game that Courtney had wanted was the King of New York, which is, um, again like a sort of sequel but it takes place in new york and there's different monsters and all this stuff but uh that was really i don't think it's technically out yet but they were selling advanced copies like limited advanced copies anyways so courtney was checking out whether or not she could get a copy of that and was telling me about the king of tokyo and i was like i want this game (laughs) so i bought that along with this power-up pack thing expansion which gives there's one, there's a Halloween pack, and it gives your characters costumes and stuff. <laughs> um, but it was just, it was so cool. And then I picked up another game from them, because it was, like, fairy tale related, called The Three Little Pigs, which was so much fun, so simple, and so great. Um, and I picked up another game called Baba Yaga, but we won't speak of that, because it was a clusterfuck. <laughs> uh, I Steph- did win it, though. Oh, oh, you want it? That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, the King of New York game is available uh, through a couple of different websites. It uh, retails for around thirty three ninety nine. Yeah, I think, but it just came out. Yes. Yeah. Can I, I just before you continue? Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. What? Um, how extensive were the rules? Because one of the things about board games in general, when I see them at those types of shows or even in comic shops, is some of them look so complex. That yeah. I like something like the Game of Thrones game, mm. where or the the Lord of the Rings game, where it's just this huge board with all these cards and all these rules, and it takes you like a whole night just to learn how to play it, and then you actually start playing it next time you get together. Mm. Is it yep. like a pick up and play? Um, yes and no. Well, here let me uh, like I picked up the King of Tokyo, uh, and I picked up the Three Little Pigs, and I played Three Little Pigs uh, at first with Bill and Chris, and trying to teach like those rules are really simple. Like, you can just kind of pick it up as you go along and read the rules. But, like, trying to read the rules around Bill, like, seriously, sometimes hurting cats would be easier. (laughs) And he's like, oh, let's get pizza. Oh, let's play the game. Steph, why are you reading the rules? Oh, my God, let's get pizza. Steph, finish telling us what the game's all about. And I'm like, ah! (laughs) Um, And then 
Bill went off to a panel and me and Chris tried to play King of Tokyo. Um, and it's actually not as fun with two players. It's more of a party game. Uh, like you, uh, But it, it was hard trying to pick that up on my own. Uh, reading the rules, it was a little bit hard for me to kind of grasp everything like the first time through the rules. I kind of had to yeah. play and kind of look through to get used to it. Uh, but then we figured out that it really wasn't that great with just two people because basically you're just attacking each other. Right. And it's more fun if there's other people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, on the Sunday night after you know the show was coming to an end, Courtney and her husband Drew uh, came to Bill's room and hung out with uh, Bill, me, and Chris. And all five of us played King of Tokyo. And they already owned it and they had like all the expansion packs for it Sweet. so uh they explained the game to us they're actually opening up a board game cafe like snakes and lattes here in toronto but they're doing it in chicago oh. Oh, cool. um so they were they were practicing their skills of <laughs> teaching new games to people with us oh they're the um, ones actually opening up the board game cafe yeah, yeah oh it's amazing they were so awesome i'm so happy i met them they're they were great um but she's just a listener yeah, New and she met up with me like at the huh? writer symposium and walked around with us, and yeah. she is awesome. I feel like she stopped by one of the like brood and boardeds or or something sometimes. You talking about Courtney Key? No, 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 oh, okay. no. Her, oh. I think the Twitter name is Up the Cat Punks. Or okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think. cool. Have to say hello. Yeah, cool. but um, so they explained King of Tokyo to us. And it was a lot easier with them kind of telling us the rules and kind of being like, oh, you can do this, but not this or this and not this. Like it was a lot more fun with somebody who already knew what was happening. Um, yeah, you yeah. definitely need someone who knows the rules. Those yeah. kind of things. Like when we played the Game of Thrones board game a couple times yeah. and um, it was much more fun once we played it the second time. Mm-hmm. And once, like, I kind of took it on myself to like learn all the rules so that I could be the person everyone ca- came to to ask the questions. Yeah. And once that was there, when new people came, like we had n- n- two new people come the second time we played it, and it was much quicker, much easier to explain once mm-hmm. somebody knows the rules. Yeah. And I'd wanted to play board games because, like, again, like Thursday and Friday, I was kind of overwhelmed, and then, um, like, I kind of got this mind frame where I'm like, well, I'm at Gen Con, I want to play games, like you know, this isn't beneath me. Like I'm still nerdy. Mm-hmm. Like I love board games. I might as well just jump in with two feet and see what happens. Um, so the Sunday though was just so much fun. And again, like King of Tokyo, I died. The f- I was the first person to die the first time we played. And then I was the second, Courtney died first, the second time. And then I died second. And then Bill drew and Chris played for like an hour and a half. That's oh. like the longest game they had <laughs> ever seen go happen. But Courtney and I started playing a game called, um, contagion pandemic mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which was tons of fun too which i also lost that's Drew a is, co-op game i thought though um i don't i mean not really i, I don't know pan- of a different game i maybe think of a different game yeah like mm. i think maybe the pandemic um might be okay but this was like a new game oh, okay yeah pandemic contagion okay um so you're playing as a plague basically like a germ that's killing off the world and you <laughs> want to be the as person. the germ yeah like you're playing yeah, as a cool. virus yeah. so you're fighting for like the domain of certain countries to ruin them mm-hmm. um and it was amazing fu- like so much fun but drew won like everything except for baba yaga i <laughs> ruled that game which was just a mess um but 
there was a lot of yelling. If you guys, if uh, listeners want to check out the the Plague Contagion, there's an app on uh, on iOS called Plague Incorporated. It's mm-hmm. only a dollar. It is. It's just like what she described. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's mm. awesome. You can play it in about twenty minutes, and you can actually name the virus. Mm. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was just a really cool experience. And then again, like I mentioned, the three little pigs, and that one was. It's this really cool uh, design, especially it comes because it's a storytale book. It comes in a bookcase, like a hardcover book, um, and you're you've got like a roof, a window, and a house or a door. Sorry. Uh, and each of them, so there's basically nine uh, cards you can pick up, and there's straw, there's wood, and there's brick, and you're trying to build houses that are sturdy, and you roll dice in order to get like a door or a window or a roof, but on the dice there's also wolves, and if you roll wolves, the big bad wolf comes. Um, that sounds and, right up my alley. I like that. <laughs> yeah, right? So if you roll one wolf you just can't re-roll that dice but if you roll two wolves the wolf comes and you have to pick one of the opposing team members houses and you get to spin this spinner which has you know uh, straw wood and brick on it and um whichever house like if you pick somebody's house that's all you can mix and match the materials right so if you have a house that's all straw and you or you've spin to straw that entire house would be wiped out but if you only have like if that person only had like a window that was straw that piece would be taken out and you just get less points at the end and the whole thing is whoever uh still has whoever has the most completed houses like each card like you know straw is worthless and wood is worth more and then brick is worth the most and whoever has the highest amount of points for completed houses wins so that one was really easy to pick up, and I played, like, a zillion times. Um, I won, like, a ton of games with my friend Chris, but Bill, like, rubbed it in my face so much because he won every game we played with him. <laughs> and he was like, suck it! Suck it, nerds! Like, he was like, so... And then he, like, because I was tweeting, I was live tweeting who won what games, and I was like, oh, like, I won this, Bill won that, Chris won this, Courtney won this, Drew won this, and then um, I didn't tweet that Bill had won the game and he was like you have to tweet it you have to tweet it so you have to tweet it right now tell people and then he's like and now you have to tweet he's like you have to tweet because you said you won every game you played against crits you have to tweet that i've won every game that you've played against me <laughs> <laughs> and then i think courtney wound up beating him at one point in time and i was like ha! <laughs> i was like thank you for just sounds like a fun him. it sounds like a fun weekend yes so anyways that was my first gen con and I went on for far too long about this, but um, <laughs> it was—it so, turned out to be so much fun. It was weird at first, and the bards kind of weirded me out. And I was like, "Why is this battle <laughs> bards of the tend bards?" To do that. Yeah. And balloons. Why is this person singing? Why is this person dancing? Wow, she's a lot older than she looked from afar. <laughs> huh. Wah, wah. I know I'm being a jerk now, but um, it was—it was really interesting. And I came home with three new board games and. I think that's what I'm going to do for my birthday. I'm going to have a board game night. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds awesome. I like it. Fun time. I want to go. It's right. interesting. It's really cool. Cool. All right. So uh, moving on to, to my books of the week. Um, I'll start with the new one first, then go into the into the old. Um, so The Multiversity, uh, number one from Grant Morrison came out. So written by Grant Morrison, art by Ivan Rice and Joe Prado. Um 
this is the first in the series of the multiversity, which is kind of redefining and reestablishing the multiverse in the DC new 52. Um, This first issue deals with the cosmic neighborhood watch, which it sets up basically the, the idea of multiversity, which is that there are these creatures like eating time and space and the, the great, the great greatest heroes of the 52 universes are called together uh, to, to, to combat them. The book starts out um, with uh, a character reading a uh, a comic book, where basically reading the comic book that you are reading, and there is there are captions and voiceover basically telling you to stop reading yes. the book because you are causing the end of the universe by reading this comic book. I love that aspect of this. Uh, um, and it seems like just like a guy, you know, like reading books and he's like having an online conversation. Um, and there's like two sets. One of the one of the more confusing things about the beginning of the book is that there's two sets of captions. One of which is the book kind of talking to you. And the other one, which is um, this guy talking online to some, to someone. We don't know who, but they're talking to someone. Just seems like a normal guy. And then suddenly a monkey in a pirate hat shows up. And... It turns out that this this guy is uh, I'm gonna Nix Uton yeah I'm gonna yeah, say yeah. who is the la- super judge who is the last of the multiversal monitors you know basically a, a multiversal police force that stops crazy shit from happening and there's crazy shit happening so big, big giant eye creatures yeah and other things that seem to be destroying the fabric of the universe they head to Earth Seven where kind of it seems the only living um, inhabitant left is the Thunderer who is sort of a demigod type of character who is battling and has been battling for a long time. All his, his friends are dead, including someone who looks like Captain America. Yeah. Um, and he looks like almost he has like a Deadpool insignia on his chest in some ways. Uh, and uh, comes and Nick Chitton basically says, okay, we're going to swap places. You have to go and get these people together to fight this. Um, this is my job. I'm going to stay and fight. And, uh, we kind of leave this area and we go, I think it's earth 23. I think is where we, 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 we zip to yeah. and we get a uh, Superman who is the, the president of the United States in earth 23. Uh, and he gets kind of sucked in to this cube, this multidimensional cube that Lex Luthor has created. And it spits him out into this sort of like precinct of the multiverse where, um, Thunderer has been gathering the great heroes from across these multiple universes to fight this oncoming threat. That's the first half of the first issue. Yes. (laughs) Um, And then we dive into the, these characters kind of realizing where they are and what they're doing and then jumping into kind of their first fight, which includes riding a ship made of music (laughs) Uh, into these other multiverses, which basically spits them out into a planet of Marvel-like characters. We've got it's Doctor so Doom, we've got the Hulk, um, a bunch of stuff. Uh, so, you know, obviously, I've talked about how much I love Grant Morrison and how he's probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite writer. And the thing I love about him most is that you never really know what to expect when you open one of his books. The only thing you can really expect is the unexpected when you pick his stuff up. You, because you never know with him whether or not this kind of stuff is going to be treated with deadly, serious, dark you know, tone or with a sort of lighthearted, you know, his sort of all continuity counts, no matter where it came from, no matter how silly it was, let's just have fun and let's play with it. This definitely falls into that second camp mm-hmm. um, where it just kind of takes off and deals with all of these really over the top and bizarre things 
but deals with them with kind of its tongue in its cheek at times. I mean, it's taking the threats seriously, mm-hmm. but it's not afraid to have, you know, Captain Carrot, who is a <laughs> cartoon bunny, you know, as, as one of its main heroes, and basically a character who is Savage Dragon in, 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 yes. in any sense of the word. Dino Cop. Dino Cop. <laughs> <laughs> Taking it on. You know, uh, you know, there's a great page with this character who is supposed to be kind of like the Hulk. Who, what is his name? I can't remember. Behemoth. Behemoth. Blue Behemoth, I think yeah. is his name. Um, who is ridiculous looking. He looks, he has a giant head and then kind of a baby body. Um, really crazy stuff. Uh, what I love about it, most of all, though, is that there isn't a lot of time spent when these people get to this precinct going like, but wh- why are we doing this? Like, why would we fight for these people? I want to go home. It's basically like, okay, yeah, we're the superheroes. We have to go fight something. And the Superman basically just takes over. He's like, okay. He's like, we need to figure this out. We need to save the world. Let's do it. Uh, and, and they go on and, and do it. I mean, there's a billion, million little Easter eggs in this yeah. book. Stuff that I probably don't even get. Um, I think that the tone is probably my favorite part, but probably maybe the most divisive part of, of the book. Because I, I think when you see this kind of stuff happening, you're expecting kind of New 52 tone, which is a, a more serious somber look at it and this is much more of a kind of rolling adventure of these people albeit with dire consequences coming down the pike um i love that we're dealing with all of these different universes and that we're going to see all these crazy iterations of characters i love that every issue is kind of this standalone it's part of the larger whole but it's kind of like here is this universe here are the characters if you want to see more of them, maybe that will happen. But this is who they are, and it sets up what they are. And I think, I mean, next week, next month is this uh, is this Doc Fate and this kind of like what it was like fifties, I guess. I think it's forties. Forties. It's Golden Age. Yeah. It's Heroes Society of Superheroes led by Doc Fate. Um, yeah. And sort of the Blackhawks. Yeah. You know, kind of heroes with guns, kind of thing. Like you know, old pulpish kind of heroes. Uh, looked really interesting. Uh, um, that's uh, Chris Sprouse is doing the art on that, which which I'm sure will be beautiful. Bob, I, I'm interested to hear what you think of this because you are a big multiverse fan. Yes, from the very beginning, back right when they first brought Earth the the original Earth two, which should have been Earth one, considering they were first. <laughs> right, but that's something else altogether. That's another argument for another day. Initially, when this was announced, what seven years ago, something eight like years it, ago, yeah. crazy. It was okay. This is the guy who, in Grant Morrison, who believes all this counts, mm. Batmite and all the rest of mm. it, and yeah, and then it just never happened. It was, it's coming, it's <laughs> coming, and then it never came. And then what I thought, I, I was initially a little put off because it was supposed to be the exploration of all the worlds we had seen through all those old Justice League, Justice mm. Society team-ups, and no, we're going to do all sorts of different things. Oh, I waited all these years so I could see Earth 2 back again. And now I, I read this, and I was as taken with it as you were. And I I like Grant Morris. I'm not a huge fan, but I, I liked and not liked mm-hmm. as the project went. It is lots of fun with all sorts of bizarre ideas, cartoon physics. <laughs> and I'll just I'll just say that and nothing else. But you get to see... All the corners, the dark, dusty corners of his mind opened up on the page. Mm -hmm. Here's what I want to see in a comic book, and it's here. I think that narrator that he, our our initial character, Mm -hmm. Nix, is talking to is Grant Morris. Yeah, yes. It's definitely the writer. Yeah, yeah, I'm figuring it's definitely him telling us not to read his own book. (laughs) You've got to give him points for that. (laughs) That you see 
heroes act from these other places acting heroically even the ones whose worlds have been destroyed the thunderer is sent back by by super judge because he's gotten the snot kicked out of him mm-hmm. he's in really bad shape his spirit's been crushed but he comes back yeah he's the leader now mm-hmm. of this because i'm gonna do the right thing aqua woman from the gender swapped earth you can't leave me out i want <laughs> i want in on this mm-hmm. you know captain carrots in their pitch and they get to the world of the retaliators which is his nod to the Avengers with Crusader America and, and all mm. the rest. And there's a Captain Marvel and a Spider-Woman there and a Hawkeye and so on. There's a Reed Richards there. We, I think I'm seeing the thing in the torch yeah. laid out by Lord Havoc, who now has what the Genesis egg. Yeah. <laughs> the Infinity Gauntlet. He has the Genesis egg. I'm not going to spoil any more jokes. Read this book. Just if you're a fan of old comic book history and just the old tone of things, it is there. It is still... look. It's a Justice League artist. Ivan Rice draws Justice League Aquaman. Mm, yeah. It's still the DC house style this mm. time around. But it's a nice winking, aren't we going to have fun here, kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lo- absolutely loved it. Yeah. I mean, at one point, they're showing the Superman of Earth 23, an issue of Action Comics yes. that's that was published here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an actual yeah. issue of, of Action Comics. So there's obviously the Earth Prime thing is going on here as well, which I think he's right. already said. Um, it, it's just a really cool, all this other stuff. Steve, what did you think of this? I loved it. Hmm. I loved it. I think it was, it was too much fun and too weird to not be into it. Uh, it felt kind of a, a book that all the things that when you're sitting around in the pitch room and, you know, you're sitting in front of, I don't think they're in suits, but let's just call yeah. them the suits. And you're pitching your wild ideas and you're like, oh, we're going to have, you know, Captain Carrot's going to be there. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to talk to the audience. We're going to tell them, you know, not to read the book. Well, you can't tell them not to read the yeah. book. Well, in this book we can. And it just, it feels like all of those things that they would sit there and be like, no, like you can't, you can't do that. It's going to completely screw up what we've been doing. You're going to have to think of something else. feels like all of those, not rejected ideas, but all of those outlandish, too big for the comic book page, even though comic books are big in general, they all wound up, all the misfit ideas wound up in this book. And I mean, it's, it's just getting started. It was so much happened so much groundwork yeah, yeah. in just this one issue uh and so many characters this is my first experience with any kind of multiversity mm-hmm. i haven't read any of the other stories i i'm totally in i'm totally in i i thought it was super fun i laughed my ass off and instead of being you know frightened by the scope of it and just how large it is you think about all these different universes all these different realities coming in like there's going to be all this stuff that i don't know and blah 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 it's all put to you, not plainly, but, you know, cohesively, and you can follow it, and it's not a problem, and it's just, you're having so much fun, you don't even pay attention to that aspect of the book. You're just having a good time with it. Yeah. I think you hit on something really important. My thought about what this was going to be and what it was pitched as all those years ago would have been great for me with all my crisis trade paperbacks <laughs> sitting here and all mm-hmm. the original issues, but really, really too centrally driven for outsiders this you don't have to be immersed in all that other stuff that came before mm, yeah. these are n- a new multiverse yeah. with all new characters Captain Carrot we've seen we know who some of these people right. were because they're reflections of ours you can go in cold and just have a good time. Well, it's like, I mean, just, just from the cover alone on the spine, you can see all the, you yes. know, mm. each universe is represented by a number and they're all going down. Some of them are highlighted, some of them are not. 
But for somebody who maybe doesn't read comics all the time or something like that, and they see that and they're going, oh my God, like, mm. are they really going to be pulling? I don't know. I know one of these. Mm. I don't know any of these other ones. I don't know if I'm going to be able to read this. You can totally read this. Yeah. And what I was funny, I think it was Luciano on, on Twitter asked me, he's like, I just picked it up. I'm, I'm kind of scared to not know what's going mm. on. Um, and I tell people, like you said, it, it's it's all new what he's doing here. It's pulling in things. But also, the thing you always have to remember about Grant Morrison stuff is there's always going to be stuff that confuses you, that you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like, you just have to kind of go along for the ride because he knows that you don't understand it. You're not supposed to understand it yet. You know, just go along for the ride, read it a second time, or just ride it out. And then at a certain point, he will explain to you mm-hmm. what he's doing, but you just have to let it kind of unfold itself if you want to enjoy it. I mean, if that's not your thing, then that's not your thing. Yeah. But um, that's what I think this book is doing. Really excited to see what goes on here. Really excited to see these uh, you know these different areas and different worlds that he that he's gonna that he's gonna restart, and um, really excited by the tone is what excited me more than anything else because I didn't know what to expect either. Yeah. Like, I knew it was gonna be crazy, but he also does crazy stuff that's serious, so I, I didn't know which way it was gonna go. The yeah. fact that it's so goofy and so over the top, at least mm. in this first issue, made me really happy. I'm really happy with some of the some of the newer stuff that's coming out of DC towards the later end of this year. Yeah, they got some really exciting stuff going on. And it's cool if this is like they're saying this is this is going to be in continuity now, which I, I, I think we were we were on the fence about it yeah. for a while as well. If this is going to be starting all these different universes and other writers and other artists have the chance or the opportunity at least in theory to tackle these once this is over to do series of their own, I think that's very cool and I think that it could be something really awesome. Yeah, the three or four Earths I want to go back to yeah, exactly in just this first issue. There are four issues worth of stuff in this one issue, yes, by the way. there's a lot of stuff. And it, it, it reminds me a little bit, that sort of storytelling is exactly what he did kind of in All-Star Superman, which is he did very condensed, very kind of um, Silver Age storytelling mm-hmm. density in, in a sort of a modern setting, and this is what it was here. And so I finished Multiversity number one, and I was like, well, I don't know what else to read because I wanted something <laughs> more, you know? So I went into my uh, my Grant Morrison shelf, and I had recently bought uh, the two kind of master volumes of Seven Soldiers of Victory, which was a series that came out, I believe, 2005, 2006 mm-hmm. from Grant Morrison, and had, uh, you know, w- the way when I read the description... It didn't seem the same, but it seemed like a similar type of thing, which was a bunch of independent stories that intersect with each other in a way that form a larger mm-hmm. whole, which is what we kind of pitch multiversity as. So Seven Soldiers of Victory... Um, uh, well, Bob, who are the Seven Soldiers of Victory in kind of classic terms? They were DC's second superhero team and debuted in the 1941 number one issue of Leading Comics. <laughs> I love the old titles. Yeah, they great old titles and what you had was their anthology characters people who didn't have their own books so it's the vigilante who is a sort of cowboy but rode around on a motorcycle with guns the crimson avenger who is in action comics one i believe and his partner wing mm-hmm. sort of it's greenhorn and cato mm-hmm. but wing wasn't an official soldier the green arrow and speedy now he's is he Arsenal now? Is that how he's this Arsenal? Works? Yeah, Roy he's Harper. Arsenal. He's Roy Harper. The Shining Knight and the original Star Spangled Kid, Sylvester Pemberton and his large cohort, Stripesy. They lasted fourteen issues, which was, I guess, two years and some change. I think this was a quarterly, and then they virtually disappeared. Some of the characters turned up here and there. Green Arrow continued on, and so on and so forth, and then resurfaced in one of those original. JLA JSA crossovers for Justice League 100, where a 
villain from the past had to be disposed of because time had been changed by the seven sol- the original seven soldiers. One of them had sacrificed their life and been scattered across the multiverses. Mm. And the Justice League and Justice Side had to team up to find them. The Star Spangled Kid, for instance, was in, was he, I think it was 50,000 years ago in Mexico or something, but he had the <laughs> flu and was afraid to leave his cave because he'd destroy civilization. Mm-hmm. So eventually, people want to read Justice League 100 to 102. I'm not going to spoil the ending, but one of the soldiers bites the big one. But they were fun characters. Again, the sea level. Mm-hmm. But a superhero team. So this time around, are any of them in well, Grant Morrison's story? Well, so the, the seven soldiers in Grant Morrison's story are Mr. Miracle, Zatanna, the Guardian, uh, Clarion, the Witch Boy, Bulleteer, Shining Knight, and Frankenstein. So Shining Blade Knight, Knight makes is, it. it makes it. Um, everyone else is different. Though the Zero Issue deals with Vigilante. Um, kind of reassembling a team that he wants because he, ah. he wants to get like a, a, a seven soldiers of victory like team back together. Okay, by the way, Bulleteer is a guy with a bullet on his head. I don't think he's yes. on the cover of this. Okay, he was Bullet Man back in the old days. <laughs> and he, he had a female sidekick named uh, I don't know Bullet Girl. Bullet Girl. Okay, well, that's, that makes sense. <laughs> they, they I thought it was going to be something like Bulletina or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, just a, just a quick preface. Uh, at the beginning of the book, Grant Morrison said about the book, the seven soldiers concept grew out of desire to recreate and update some of the brilliant, but often overlooked minor characters from the DC universe. After tackling just about all of the major players at, at both DC and Marvel, I felt I needed a tougher challenge and launching a bunch of new books into a reactionary market seemed just about hardcore enough. Trouble is there's only so much you can do with the big guns. Only so far you can go before you break them or repeat yourself so against all reason, I chose to take the difficult road that led to characters who were capable of change. Um, so this first volume, which okay, these were all published as separate miniseries, right? Mm-hmm. So um, they all got their separate miniseries. This first volume deals with um, Zatanna, Clarion, um, Shining Knight, and The Guardian. And also has a zero issue where it sets up everything, which is including that um, the thing with uh, the vigilante. And the Vigilante story basically leads into the the bigger crux of the story, which is similar to Multiversity in some ways, which is there is this force called the Sheeta, which are they you know they they come back and they like they raised Camelot. They're the ones who destroy civilizations, oh. and they come back every few thousand years when a civilization has become fat and lazy and has forgotten all virtue. They come back and they just wipe them out, uh, and they're on their way back again. And in the prophecy, it is foretold that a a team of seven will take down the Sheeta. That they will end their reign. They'll end this cycle. So what the Sheeta are doing is they're targeting all teams of seven in the DC universe and trying to take them out. So what kind of the the powers that be, kind of the good forces in the background of this universe are doing, is they are putting in position these me- these seven members of a team that have no idea they're on a team with one another. Like that. So, you know, so they're all working towards the same goal. They're all pushed on this path, but they don't know they're working together so that there's no way the Sheeta can come and try to sure. take them out. Um, it, you know, we introduce the Sheeta through this first story, and then again with the Shining Knight, who in this context... Um, and was launched again, I think, in the Demon Knights in the same way, is was a Knight of Camelot, who was the last Knight of Camelot and ended up going to fight the Sheeta as they were destroying Camelot, ended up in this the castle revolving, which is something where the Sheeta used to go through time. Okay. 
pushes them wherever the door opens as it yeah, comes they, around. Yeah, nice. so they go through time. So this is how they wait out civilizations without really much time passing for them. He gets thrown through it into modern times. And this is kind of where it begins to put things together and and try to you know, do his mission, and then we also get, I say he could, but it's, 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 it's a girl. <laughs> but you don't know that till like, the second issue. Um, the Clarion, the witch boy, is a character who is in this limbo town, which kind of exists below our world, um, and in Grant Morrison's thing, they, all, these witch people are descendants of the Roanoke colonists who went missing and disappeared, and so they're very, like, they're Puritans, and, and they're very staunch, and they, they worship this god named uh, Croat, Croatoan, um, and they have to go through these rites of passage, but they're sealing the town because there's something crazy going on, which is the Sheeta stuff, and Clarion kind of runs away and escapes into the real world. Um, so you've got him, you've got the Guardian, who, in, in this context, um, there's a paper called The Guardian, and they want they have all these reporters who are reporting all this news but they want someone like basically their in-house superhero so they create this guardian superhero and they get this kind of ex-military officer to take that mantle up um zatanna is zatanna she's still the same character um she's dealing with having her powers on the fritz because she went through a major magical kind of guffaw where some people ended up dead because of a spirit that got invoked so her, her powers are kind of on the on the fritz right now um and uh does that all? Did I say all the characters? Is that four? Did I say four characters? Did I think so. Now, which uh, yeah, yes, there was a guardian in the Golden Age, the guardian in the Newsboy Legion, blue yeah. outfit, yeah, 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 yellow this, shield. Oh, okay. yeah, this is what it is. Yeah, okay. yeah, and his Newsboy army is what, okay. is what they call them. So I didn't know if that was. I don't know all the origins of these characters. Yeah. So I, that's yeah, it's a Kirby character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and a lot of the characters that he's using in in this run are Kirby characters, uh, DC characters. Um, it's fascinating and a ton of fun, and it has the artists on it are J.H. Uh, Williams III, wow, Simone Bonacci, Cameron Stewart, who we're going to talk to very soon, Ryan Sook, and Fraser Irving are the artists on it. So amazing lineup of artists. Um, even different ones on on the second volume, which has some of the other characters I mentioned before. Uh, it's engaging. It's um, fun. It's dark at times. It's they're great character portraits of these people who, except for Zatanna, I know very very little, next to nothing about. Um, and similarly with this, it's the same thing he wanted to do with Multiversity, which is he created these stories so that people could take them and create ongoing series with these characters that he's reworked. Um, a couple of them he did, and that did happen because in the New Fifty Two we got Demon Knights, in which Shining Knight was a major player in that, and it was the Morrison version. And we also got um, Frankenstein, Agent of Shade, which is that's the character that is oh. introduced here or reworked here. Um, and I don't know what Anna Senti's doing with Clarion, the Witch Boy, in the new series, but I don't know if it's going to be Morrison inspired, if it's going to be more of the Peter David stuff, it's going to be more truer to the original Kirby stuff. But if it's this is definitely the tongue isn't in the cheek as hard as it is in multiversity it definitely has a more serious bent to what's going on um but it is a fantastic read i devoured it it's this giant it's in two they have smaller trades but they have these two kind of almost like mini omnibuses of it um which are big you know they're i think they're like they're like 13 or 14 issues each um really really great stuff um the first one it's it, it just it and it, they're they're um ordered in the book the way they were released. So you don't have to, you don't read them in sections. You read them kind of part one of The Guardian, part one of Shining Knight, part one of Zatanna, part one of Clarion. Uh, and it, it's just great to come back around to those characters that you read four, three or four issues ago and be like, all right, I'm back to this character. I'm so excited to take it on. 
for me, coming out of it, uh, Clarion and The Shining Knight are my two favorite ones so far. Uh, really, really awesome stuff. Beautiful art. Uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory by, by Grant Morrison. Uh, just really, really cool stuff. And it really kind of fed my kind of want to read more after reading Multiversity. Now, the other trades are more character-specific? You know, I don't know. I haven't... I think so. I think they've rele- they released them like Zatanna, Clarion. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's what they did. And this is a collection of, of all of them. But with these two, you'd have everything. Everything, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, they're expensive. They're like 30 bucks a piece. But uh, so 60 bucks, you have all, all of the... I guess, I think it was like something like 24 to 32 issues huh. of stuff. So, I haven't started the second volume yet, but I'm, I'm really excited to do so and, and check it out. Word. So, yeah, Seven Soldiers yeah. of Victory by Grant Morrison and Multiversity number one as well. All right, guys. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to come back and we're going to speak with uh, Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher. And we're also going to... I got to interview Babstar separately on another day. So we're going to put that in there as well. And you got the whole Batgirl team.
All right, we are back here on Talking Comics, and we have the pleasure of having Brendan Fletcher and Cameron Stewart with us, two-thirds of the Batgirl team. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. All right, so um, starting off, guys, uh, since your Batgirl has been announced, uh, it's been unavoidable, uh, and the internet has gone crazy, but for once, in a very positive way, um, how has that reaction been for you guys? I think uh, it's been really, really amazing. I've, I was, I've answered this question before, um, and I was talking with Brendan about it, that I think that you know, we, we knew that we were onto something good. I think we were all very confident that what we were doing was good. But you never really know how other people are going to respond to it. And then when it came out, you know, on the day that, that it was planned for the release and we were all sort of like up and waiting to see when the news would drop and we had our eye on the internet and on Twitter and everything. And, and it just exploded in a way that I don't think either of us were really, or any of us, I, I should say, were, were prepared for. It just was like this, just this deluge of, of praise. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's really validating, you know, it's, it's, it's this, uh, encouragement that what you're doing is on the right track and, and any any kind of art that you create it's 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 about expression but it's also about communication and when you send something out and then people you know ping back to you um i think you you've made a, a successful connection with people and it's really exciting to to know that we've made that much of a mark before our, our first issue has even come out yeah, absolutely brandon what about you yeah, I mean, uh, Cameron and I, we work on Batgirl pretty much every day, and, and this comes up occasionally, that we're still, uh, over a month after the announcement, still sort of taken aback by the amount, the sheer amount of response that we're still receiving. Like, it, it just, just a few images out there, and we've kind of given a few interviews, and we're sort of talking about the direction, but... The response is so passionate and so strong, and has continued for over a month now. And and um, we're, I mean, I'm kind of speechless. I, I don't know what to say at this point. It's been um, it's been incredible, and um, we've really dug ourselves a large hole. And I hope that our our first issue lives up to everyone's expectations. <laughs> now, I think the thing that's also amazing about it is that I mean. Let's not kid ourselves. The reaction has not been unanimously positive, but it has been overwhelmingly in the majority to be positive, and that's sadly pretty rare in comics. You know, like I mean, it tends to be a lot more of things that come out or announced or whatever. Someone makes some spectacular blunder that everybody you know complains about all the time, and so it's actually kind of surprising and amazing to be responsible for like the one thing that's created all this positive buzz and positive attention. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, well, it reached critical mass so quickly, it was as if you didn't even need the internet to hear about it. it yeah. It's just everywhere instantly, and people who weren't even reading the book before were, I've been waiting for this forever. Yeah, yeah. I think we, we set some kind of record from, like, reveal to people already having made cosplay outfits. Yes. Like, we, by the end of the first day, we saw people had already purchased, like, the boots or... We're, we're laying out fabric and cutting it into the shape for the leggings and everything. It's like it's like so quick. I can't. And the amount of fan art on that first day was just overwhelming too. Yeah, I, I've never seen anything like that before. But I, I also yeah. think that that helped spread the word. It was almost like advertising. Mm -hmm. That fan art just went everywhere. It was incredible, and it's still coming in to this day. 
That's amazing. And I, I'm pretty sure Doc Martin actually owes you guys, you know, like a commission <laughs> or something now or a percentage once they figure out that it's because of you guys that yellow Doc Martens everywhere like sold out. <laughs> well, what we would love would be uh, for some kind of, you know, official kind of acknowledgement from Doc Martens, like some kind of, you know, cross promotional synergy yeah. kind of thing, whatever. That would be incredible. I mean, it seems like a, a really obvious thing for them to do. But I mean, obviously, that kind of thing is so far outside of our hands. <laughs> I've heard that there's there are some young women now they're sort of stealth cosplaying by just wearing their yellow Doc Martens to work. <laughs> yeah, totally. And we see, I mean, on our blog, on our um, Batgirl of Burnside Tumblr, uh, which is batgirlofburnside.tumblr.com, um, you, you'll see we've we've reposted things of like people who just put together f- fashion outfits that are inspired by Batgirl. It's not a Batgirl cosplay outfit, but it's like a leather jacket and the yellow boots and this t-shirt and whatever. And it's kind of like a, yeah, it's like a subtle sort of thing to, so you can sort of dress up and maybe a, send a message to other people surreptitiously mm-hmm. that you're, you know, you're dressing in a kind of a costume, but it's just fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Will that sort of feed backwards into the book, you think, with so many different looks coming out from the public that since Barbara picked up her off at thrift store, she could be doing the same? Yeah, you know what's really funny is that I, I can't really say too much, but this is part of the frustrating thing is that you know people are asking us all these questions, and Brendan and I kind of want to play a lot of this close to our chest because we sure. we feel like we have a lot of surprises that are that are going to come out, and we don't want to give them all away. But one of the things that I think is going to happen is people are going to read the comic, and for the first few issues at least, think that we wrote it in response to. <laughs> The online okay. reaction, when in fact we have not, and I think what we have done just is, is anticipate. Um, so that's one of the other amazing things is that any of the some of the elements in our story that may be seen as kind of outrageous or unbelievable, they've actually happened in real life now, <laughs> and so it completely validates these certain story points that we have. We've been crafting this narrative since, what, March, I think we started working on this, Cameron? Yeah. And um, while um, there was some back and forth with editorial and we changed some aspects of it, um, the core of what uh, we wanted to accomplish with it is there. And that's the stuff, you know, that we were um, cracking away at for months before anybody knew that there was a, a new take on Batgirl. Um, so it's going to be yeah, it's going to be really strange to watch this story unfold and see the reaction from uh, readers. Yeah, and, and um, how did the process go about of of de- coming up with this design uh, of of the character? Um, well, what happened was back in I think it was back in February. I was contacted by um, Katie Kubert, who is no longer with DC. She's a Marvel now, but at the time she was the Batgirl editor. And she, under Mark Doyle's um, instruction or guidance, uh, was looking for someone to take over Batgirl. And I think Mark suggested to her that they contact me because he was looking at an issue of Batgirl, uh, sorry, of uh, Batman Incorporated that I'd done with Grant Morrison that was about Stephanie Brown Batgirl at a private school for girls. And um, I think that was enough for him to to just kind of be like this. This could be an interesting person to to take over the book. So Katie contacted me and uh, asked if I would be interested in taking over Batgirl, not only as artist but also as writer as well. Um, 
and I and I was interested. I said, yeah, sure, that sounds great. But I said, the first thing that I want to do is this is conditional on me taking the job, is or my job is conditional on this is is um, is I get to redesign the costume, um, just because I think that you know there's several things. First of all, the the, the black armored new 52 costumes just not really to my taste mm -hmm. it's not really the kind of thing that i would do if it was up to me um and also that i knew that if i was going to do a batgirl comic it was going to be something that was kind of upbeat and fun because that's what appeals to me about the character so i felt like that couldn't be reconciled with the sort of the dark armored kind of version of her so with the spikes all over it and everything and so um so I said, I would like to redesign the costume. And if, if you can give me clearance on that, then we can talk about, you know, things past that. And so they went to bat for a costume redesign. And they were uh, given the green light. So I was, um, you know, just kind of toying around with ideas of what I wanted to do and was going through a lot of fashion blogs because it was really important to me that Batgirl in the, in the New 52 is meant to be, they, they sort of uh, de-aged her a little bit and, and since the reboot of the New 52 she's been meant to be 21 years old and so I wanted to do a costume that was believable for a 21 year old, 21 year old girl to wear. And something that was not just like a superhero costume, but was also kind of stylish and fun and, um, and practical and, and could be, you know, something that was assembled out of real world fashion items. And it was also important to me that it wasn't sexualized. And something that I have seen a lot of blogs and websites is, is kind of go like, oh, thank God that Batgirl is not sexualized anymore. And one thing I do have to give credit to is that the, the Batgirl costume that was prior to ours was not sexualized in the way that some other superhero costumes were. So I do have to acknowledge that we're not necessarily the first ones to draw a, ca uh, or a, a Batwoman, Batgirl. Why did I mess that up? Um, we're not the first to draw a Batgirl that's not sexualized, but I think that we're maybe you know one of the more prominent examples of doing a, a, a new costume design that isn't sexualized. And... and um, so anyway, so with all of those things in mind, and, and I really wanted to take a page out of the books of, of Jamie McKelvey and Darwin Cook, who were t two of the, the better costume designers, I think, and, and uh, the, the Captain Marvel redesign and Darwin's Catwoman redesign from back in the day were both really you know, prominent in my mind. And, um, so I was working on this and kind of coming up with, with uh, this, this idea. And it, you know, it took a lot of attempts, but I eventually settled on this kind of leather jacket and leggings and Doc Martin boots. And, and it was around this time that um, unfortunately I was offered another job, which I had been hunting for for a while, which is Fight Club, Fight Club 2. And they both came at this, exactly the same time. And so I was, I wanted to do them both desperately, but I couldn't do them both. So the compromise that I was sort of pitching to DC was, how about I work with some other and not do Batgirl entirely on my own, but I get to choose some other people to work with, and we can kind of still execute the vision that I have for it, but it can be more of a collaborative thing. And so they were, they were really excited about that. And so I'd, I wanted to work with Babs, Babs Tarr, because I'd, I'd seen her stuff. I've been a fan of her stuff for a few years. And... Um, I just think she's a fantastic illustrator, and she'd never done comics before. I mean, I'm sure you've covered all this with her anyway, but but she'd never done comics, but she's just a, a tremendous illustrator, and she had this real sense of style and fashion that I wanted. So I gave 
my design to her and I said, here's what I'm thinking for this costume. What do you think? And she was like, this is great, but how about we do this with it? And she just did like a draw over and she added some detailing onto the jacket and, um, you know, just made these kind of changes to it that I think elevated it and made it into something that it was fine before, but I think what she brought to it really made it sing. And it's the things that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of doing. Um, so I, I think that it was the, the, the blend of the two of us that really kind of made it exceptional and made it, you know, what everybody has responded to so positively. Absolutely. And how did uh, Brendan enter the equation? Blackmail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got um, photographs. <laughs> actually, it's the other yeah. way around. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, actually. I do have some money. Um, I've been friends with Brendan for like 15 years, something like that. Something like that, yeah. It's been a really long time. He's one of my best friends. Uh, Brendan has written some stuff before. He did Wednesday Comics with Carl, and he did... Uh, well, we worked together on Assassin's Creed right before this, too. Right, exactly, yeah, and so I had, uh, not writing, it was Brendan and Carl wrote the Assassin's Creed book and I illustrated it. So we have done some things before, but we've never actually written together, and uh, when, when it came time for me to sort of step back a little bit and look for people to work with, Brendan was just a natural, because we're such good friends, we're such close friends, we've known each other for so long, and, our, and crucially is that our, our attitudes towards, I think, comics in general, but also this character were in alignment and and so it was it was just a no-brainer so he was the first and only person i thought of really was was you know i i contacted him right away and i was like hey how would you like to write batgirl with me awesome and, and how uh how do you guys work together quite well <laughs> um well now i have to get up when the uh, sun is hasn't come up yet because Cameron's in Berlin. No, I've, I've been trying to get up early, but it's a real struggle. <laughs> uh, so I basically just try to wake myself up as soon as I can in the morning, and, and Cameron and I kind of hit it as, as early as we can and try to get through as much um, script work as possible early in the day. And um, we're doing, a, we, we've got this weird process. I think what we're doing is probably quite unique. I'm not sure any other team is working this way. And it's not any way that I've ever worked before. Is um, we we break a story, I guess, like like any writing team would. We we kick it back and forth, and this really this sometimes takes a while. Our books are kind of plot heavy, um, so we kick it around. We we get it in some kind of shape that we like, and then we sort of break it into pages and figure out, generally speaking, what goes on every page, and we let editorial in on that and they might have some notes um from that point we just kind of kick around some dialogue for the page and then like cameron ends up doing a lot of the heavy lifting um with his layouts which is something that most writing teams don't do um so this is a it's a bit of a unique collaboration and i i have to say and i've said this before like i'm heavily involved in writing these pages i know in my head what they're going to look like and yet, when I get the layouts, I'm blown away consistently. <laughs> like every time I get a layout from Cameron, I'm just kind of taken aback. And um, usually, it's by how he can cram so many panels on a page. Um, but also, his action choreography is like second to none in comics. I, I just, I'm in awe all the time. Awesome, awesome, Stephanie. We haven't got a chance really to hear hear from you yet. Do you have a question? 
I do. <laughs> Is um, it about pizza? It could be about pizza. <laughs> Here, I'll tie this in to pizza. Uh, okay, so what are your processes like? Is there anything that you guys need to have around to write or draw? <laughs> like, do you need to have music, snacks, any particular drinks? Or do you need to be anywhere in particular to work? Well, I think, I mean, with because Brendan and I live in different cities, we have to do a lot of it over FaceTime or Skype. So um, we a lot of it is we, we sit wherever we, like I've been in Portland uh, for the past few months. I'm back in Berlin now, but I was, for the summer I was in Portland, Oregon. And uh, so we would just, you know, Brendan would be at home and I would be at home or in the house that I was renting. And, and uh, we just sort of set up our laptops or our iPads and, and just sit with, with FaceTime on and bat ideas back and forth for a while. And a lot of it is just us sort of like, I wouldn't say arguing, but, but we, we kind of debate story points. Um, I think a very common thing that Brendan says to me is he goes, just, 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 just hear me out. Just hear me out. <laughs> um, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm because like, because Cameron is, we're both very opinionated, but Cameron will decide early into my statement that it's not a good idea <laughs> without actually letting me get to the point of what the statement is. But we know each other really well now. Well, I mean, we've known each other well for years, but yeah. we've... We do this like every day. We kind of we, we kind of know what the back and forth is going to be like. So I'm like anticipating being shut down on a new concept before I can get to the meat of the idea. Well, because he'll do this. He'll be like, "All right, so how about this? How about this? <laughs> Let's say a dinosaur shows up." Yeah, and, and I'm this, like, this, "No, this was today's no, uh, no. this was today's script." I'm like, no, 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 no. And he's like, "No, no, just wait. Just hear me out. Just hear me out. Just hear me out." It's it a totally robot. makes sense so, in the story. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally so. with Brendan on this one. Like dinosaurs <laughs> and comics, yeah. that that speaks to me. Now, guys, um, this could go either way in our story. But do you want to see Barbara riding the dinosaur or fighting the dinosaur? Um, um, I think she wants a pet dinosaur. Yeah. I think definitely riding the dinosaur is the way to go. Yep. <laughs> well, there you go. So, issue thirty-nine. <laughs> so we have. We we have these sort of like these these sort of debates a lot where we're just sort of you know breaking down the issue and and um, and a lot of it is consulting Babs as well. I mean we we've sort of taken to to just sort of asking her what kind of stuff do you want to draw because I think oh, man, that today was like a heavy Babs yeah. consultation day. Yeah, because I think I think right. I mean it's all having her on board has already changed the way that we're approaching a lot of it. It's it's completely changed a lot of the story points and and a lot of the approach to to what we're doing, how we're handling the characters, and because you want to play to the strengths of the artist. You know, there's no sense in seeking out a particular artist and then not giving them any meat to chew on. So, um, we've been trying to to really involve her in just telling us the kind of things that she wants to do and. And then we go, okay, well, you want to draw this, so how do we work that into the story that we've come up with so far? And so we, you know, just kind of massage things until hopefully they're satisfying everybody. Um, and then I take the, 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 the sort of the page-by-page the -page breakdown that we come up with, and then I do the layouts. And for that, I work digitally, so for me, I, I use everything. I do, a, I do all my work on a Cintiq tablet. Um, 
and then I send them over to Babs, and, and she does the, the finished art over top of them. But you've got, I mean, you, you could talk about the difference, too, um, between your, your kind of traveling method of work and your, now you're at home. Because um, I think that having the companion has kind of changed everything, right? Yeah, I mean, the one thing is just it's made me more mobile. I, I, have, a, I have a Cintiq companion. I have two Cintiq companions. One, one is a large, you know, 22-inch one, which sits on my desk at my studio. And then I bought the Cintiq companion, which is the totally portable, self-contained you know, can go um, can go anywhere with me. It's just the size of a laptop computer, so I bring that around. So the the good thing about that is that I can work on a plane, or I can work in a cafe, or I can work in a hotel room, or, or at home. You can or, you don't or, need to stay in your studio. You can actually go exactly, into your living yeah. room. And, yeah, and sit and watch Netflix while I work or whatever. <laughs> so and that's a uh, uh, that's like a digital tablet. Yeah, it's it's like a slightly larger kind of iPad. Okay. Um, but it has a full fully powered Windows computer built into it. Gotcha. Okay. So um and also like enough levels of pressure sensitivity to um actually honestly render your art whereas yeah. like you, an iPad doesn't have that kind of thing. Mm. Microsoft exactly. Surface doesn't have that. Yeah. Awesome. So it's far it's far as as far as being like an art uh device um it's it's the one that's been the be- a portable art device. I should say it's the one that that's been the best for me. I tried using an iPad and other things, and it just just not you don't get the precision that you would want with uh, with anything else. Um, and then for drawing, like I mean, I, I I watch a lot of TV or movies while I draw. Um, I, I'll listen to music when I write if I'm writing on my own. When Brendan and I are writing together, we we're, we just have silence, but. Um, if I'm sitting and just writing, you know, finessing dialogue or whatever, I'll sometimes put on music that's similar in mood to what I want to accomplish. Cool. Uh, kind of like a, you know, just like if it was a movie that's the soundtrack that I would want to hear in that movie. Cool. That's pretty much exactly the same for me. I, I put music on when I'm writing on my own, but um, when Cameron and I work, no music. Outside of that, I, I feel like when I work with Cameron now, <laughs> I need at least two devices, one to use to communicate and um, one to kind of type on. Um, so lately I've got a laptop and the iPad, but I'll be heading to Toronto in a couple of days and I'll probably be rocking my phone and an iPad, which is a little more awkward, but it'll work. Um, and I have um, I have a, a Bluetooth keyboard that I use for that. Um Outside of that, I just need like lots of coffee, which I shouldn't be drinking, but <laughs> coffee and water like mad. Yeah, my biggest thing, man, when I get when I get actually into a work groove, I just forget to eat and drink altogether. Yeah, it's true. I'm really bad at that. Yeah, I think that's... I just need like coffee IVs. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I, yeah. I only really need the coffee. It's almost like a time filler. It's like when I hit some kind of obstacle that I can't get by. What the solution is? Okay, well, I'll go make a coffee, or I'll go to the coffee shop, or something. And it yeah. just just moving around sometimes helps um, jog an idea into life. Awesome, awesome. Bob, you have a question? Sure. Now we heard a couple of names mentioned before. I just wondering, do you guys have any general influences in terms of just comics and anything specific to this project? Oh, just in general. I mean, that we could be here all day talking about. <laughs> influences um you know both in in 
just comics that we love, creators we love. Um, I'm sure Cameron's got a ton that influence where he's gone with his art. But, I mean, I guess we should talk in terms of this project in particular. Uh, I feel like we're doing, we're actually, I don't know where it's all coming from, but we're doing something that doesn't feel like any other comic. And it's not that we set out to do that. We just set out to create something that was honest based upon the idea the ideas that we had for a story and the approach to the character. And the approach to the character is informed by, uh, I think, um, you know, the iconic version of, of Barbara Gordon's Batgirl, which is a kind of, a, I think, a mashup in the public consciousness of, of Yvonne Craig in Batman 66 sure. and um, the, um, the Batman animated series version of Batgirl and... Um, and maybe what we saw in the old, um, I think they're Carmine Infantino. Yeah, from the old detective comics. The, yeah, yeah, uh, it's something, something in there, and we've this. It's ended up on uh, in our issues as something that I can't. Like I don't know, Cameron. When when you look at that, is there anything that's? Are you seeing any influences directly? Well, I'd said I think I comics mentioned influences. Yeah, here's the weird thing, is that I undeniably have comic comics influences. I, there's definitely writers and artists whose work that I love, and I'm sure that they're seeping in and whatever. But um, they're rarely conscious to me as much as I'm influenced by, like, film and television. Yeah. And I don't mean that in the sense of, like, film and television are superior to comics, and really what I'd rather be doing is a movie. But wh I, I just happen to think of stuff like that. And if this was a movie, how would I shoot it? Or how would I cut this together? Or what's the feel that I want to do? And I, I think all the references I mentioned to Brendan are movies and TV. And it's the and, same. Everything I brought to the table is all movies yeah. and TV. And I think what we're trying to do is, like, how do, the, how do we then filter that back into comics, you know? And so my big influence for this is um, I really want it to feel like an Edgar Wright movie. And, awesome. and in terms of, like, the blend of genre mm -hmm. and comedy and action and sincerity that I think all of his movies have and do, and, and do so well, um, that's really, I think, my number one influence for this kind of thing. Is like, I want it to be balls-out, awesome action that gets people really excited. I want it to be funny. I want it to be visually interesting. Um, I want it to be sincere and have hearts and have characters that you actually care for. And I can think of no better thing in recent memory i think that that blends all of those things together than than edgar wright movies and and um that's really my my sort of my barometer for for what we're doing with batgirl well please don't think that that means that we're sort of um we're lifting directly from another medium like it uh we're not we're very conscious that we're making comics and i think you'll see when when number 35 ships that um we're we're so conscious, in fact, that we've made these um, radical decisions to use the language of the medium in, well, hopefully kind of innovative ways relative to the character. So we're doing very comic booky comics. Not, yeah. not movie comics. Yeah, for me, it's, yeah, exactly. We're not trying to do, we're not trying to replicate the experience of watching a movie. We're not doing that, that you know, that Brian Hitch Ultimates thing of just doing, you know, four widescreen panels per page and trying to make it look like a movie. No, we're trying to do something that's very comic booky in presentation, but in, in just in sort of spirit. Mm -hmm. um, it's like those movies, you know? Yeah. And there's other things we can, other TV and movies that we pull from. Um, uh, 
in terms of the approach to uh, narrative and character and theme. Um, but it's, I don't think, outside of Batgirl comics themselves, I don't think there's any comics that we've gone to. I mean, there's, for me, honestly, there's a touch of Jaime Hernandez's Locas in this. Maybe more than a touch when I think about it. But, um, but that's for, if I'm going to be completely honest, that's always been a touchstone for me. And um, I, I find it difficult to escape. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think, too, when I, was, when I was first approached and when I was thinking about this, I mean, I was, uh, Hawkeye was an influence as well. Mm. The fraction Aha Hawkeye was, right, was right. something that... And, and just in the sense of, um, of doing something that was kind of offbeat and quirky and down-to-earth and not necessarily about supervillains all the time. Um, but it was also one of your main things was that was that we were going to be able to um, tell stories at least for a time that didn't need to be connected directly into the rest of the Bat books, so that we could we could um, allow the character to kind of make this turn and not have to also navigate at the same time crossover events and things. Right. And Hawkeye also apparently has that. I I won't. Well, I mean the issue. I haven't read it all. The issues I've read. Um, don't tie into Avengers stuff. That's kind of the point, I think, right? Yeah, they have the brilliant thing on the first page that says this is what he does on his days off, and that's all you need to know, and there's nothing beyond that. And, and that was a, the thing for us. Is it, we, you know, we've had a lot of um, questions or, or concern about the fact that we're removing Batgirl from Gotham and we're sort of you know, taking her away from the rest of the Bat family and, and, and uh, giving her an all-new cast of characters and... And the reason for that was just so that we weren't burdened with with the kind of the continuity that can get you know messy and tangled tangled up. Um, we just we're, wanted. We're to really have, helping the book to. Be, we're trying to help the book to become uh, accessible. Yes, sure. mm -hmm. it, it we, yeah. Be. We wanted something that that people could come in because we've had a lot of people saying, "I've never read a DC comic, but this one makes me want to read it," or "I haven't read." a DC comic in 10 years and I'm going to come back for you guys and we don't want to drop them right into a thing that says oh and by the way you have to also be reading Batman Eternal and this one and this one to get to make sense of it all we wanted something that you could come into cold and maybe you might not get a couple of the references here and there but for the most part you can totally get it and the way to accomplish that was to you know give her a whole new cast of characters and a whole new situation and, and a convenient story way for us to do that was to just move her out of Gotham well, and, and we should also be clear that we're not ignoring everything that's gone on before, and we're not um, we're not avoiding anything. Like the, um, there will be the occasional reference that if you're brand new to the series, it it won't have the same kind of resonance for you. But we're making sure that it all works in a self-contained way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, what you guys are saying sort of reminds me of uh, when Mark Way took over daredevil right because right. he took all you know daredevil had gone through the ringer for about you know probably 20 years at that point and when he took over the book he didn't ignore that stuff that that, that pain was all still there but just the way that he addressed it and the way that it its importance in the story changed when he took over that's Precisely. exactly what we're doing yes completely completely 100 percent. yes because because yeah i mean it's since the reboot the last three years is it's been a pretty dark book and and she's had a lot of uh She's been put through the ringer as a character, and and we wanted to give her a bit of a break from that. And so, but those things are important 
in order to get us to the place that we were taking her. Cool. Um, they do figure into the storyline, and so it, it's it's definitely not intended to be like a yeah like a like a total reboot and an erasure of everything that's happened before, but it is a pivot. It is a mm-hmm. it is a like all right. So this is this is how it's been. We're going to continue the story, but we're going to take a turn and go in a different direction now. But the and the pivot is the story. It's not like we're just pivoting and throwing <laughs> throwing. Uh, I was going to say throwing her to the wolves, but it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> um, it, but it it does it does feel like we're doing that. I think on the first few pages, but it's the actual this our first arc is really the story of how she psychologically makes an attempt to turn her life uh, around. Really, awesome, awesome, Stephanie. I know you uh, you said you had another question, right? Yeah. So uh, just going back to something you were briefly saying before, DC doesn't have many all ages books available from their DC new 52 lineup, but Gotham Academy is being billed as YA, which is great. Will Batgirl be following that model as well uh, and being more accessible to a younger crowd? Well, no, this, I mean, this is something we get asked a lot and something we speak to. Um, They're, they're really, I mean, even outside of my involvement in both of them, they're, they're sister books in a lot of ways in that um, you could almost chart a path um, from the characters in Gotham Academy, you know, maybe growing up and graduating and moving to Burnside and going to Burnside College alongside Batgirl. There are, um, we're building this sort of little world, we're building these little elements that'll kind of show up in in either book. However, um, well, the tones are very different because they're, they're making attempts to say different things but um, Gotham Academy is a story of uh, younger children and um, Batgirl is a story about uh, young people in their early 20s and if we're going to be honest about what um, what's going on in the lives of these people uh, the the story of the people in their early 20s is going to have some elements that maybe some families don't feel are appropriate for younger children to be reading about. Yeah. Um, like the girls will be going to bars. And even though we don't show anything explicit on the page and we don't speak explicitly about things, those are the circumstances. That's, that's you know, Barbara's real life now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're very careful. Like we, we don't want to use language that is explicit and we're certainly reining back in terms of violence. Um, the, the violence in our, and there, there is action and there is violence and there's punching and there's blades and <laughs> weapons and all kinds of stuff, but it's all done in more of a sort of a, a sort of a fun, exciting way instead of a gory, gruesome way. Um, but we do, you know, we do make reference to uh, certain adult things. I mean, there's a, again, I don't want to go too much into detail, but, but there's a party in our first issue, in issue 35, and, and Barbara gets drunk. You know, there's no two ways around it. That, that, that happens. Um, but we don't necessarily show her drinking a bunch of booze and whatever and talking about it explicitly, but it's there. And if if you're an adult, you'll pick up on it. If you're a younger kid, you may not, but it may be something that, that parents, you know, may not want to have a discussion with their kids about at this point or depending on how young they are or whatever. So, I mean, our advice as, as always is if a parent is intending to give it to their child or to read it along with their child, read it first once. And make it make a call for yourself if it's something that you that you want to share with your kids. I think um, too, 
I mean, it's really strange, but some of these issues are will kind of be more all ages friendly. I was thinking, Cameron, about the the issue that follows thirty six. There's nothing in it that that a young child couldn't read. I mean, even we don't even imply anything. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean we're, we're just unless you don't do like stuff. your kids reading books with people with swords in it, but. <laughs> We're just trying to do play. stuff that, that I think we're, we're, you know, we're just doing whatever is appropriate for the story. And then we're just being sensitive to the fact that, you know, maybe let's not cut off a big chunk of our audience by, by writing this to, you know, exclusively an adult audience. Um, right. And, and cause there's, you know, heaven knows there's enough of those already. So, you know, we're, we're trying to tread that, that balance of like doing something that, that, uh, that isn't exclusively for adults, but at the same time isn't necessarily, you know, condescending to children. I think it's a case where, you know, Gotham Academy, as we can say up front, you can hand Gotham Academy to almost any age person, young or old. It's, it's good for everybody. Um, Batgirl, it's going to vary family by family. Um, I think some families may find that the content, even though it's implied, is inappropriate for their 10-year-old. I know in my case... My parents would have let me have it, <laughs> and if I had any questions about anything, they would have, uh, they would have, um, you know, dealt with that at the time. But there's nothing. God, I, I was saying the other day, I actually, I bought a, a copy of Howard Chaykin's Black Kiss when I was like 11 or something. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, seriously. I read that comic when I was young too. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like. Uh, Batgirl is super tame compared to the kind of things. I mean, I don't know even today, but it's like after six already. WTF? It'd be better if like. Hmm. And some families may be uncomfortable with that. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Bob, oh, it sounds like that were, if it's a movie, it's a PG thirteen, right? Yeah. Parental guidance yeah. and just mm-hmm. yeah, take a totally. take a shot first, take mm-hmm. a look. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I have a question that. You may not want to answer just because it's it's move, maybe moving forward too far in the storyline. But I'll just put it this way: Will Barbara be taking computer courses while she's at college? Well, I'll tell you that she um, she won't be, um, but she won't be taking them uh, first of all because it's not where she's going right now. But she's also not going to be taking them because she doesn't need to. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, we're really uh, 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 one of the uninformed criticisms that we have (laughs) is that we're we're making Barbara into like a a fourteen year old kid, and we're stripping over all of her intelligence and her agency, and you know, mainly because they saw a picture of her taking a photograph of herself, which I think is an absurd assumption, but. we yeah we I mean something that that we have been trying to tell people is that we are keeping her the same character. She is absolutely whip smart and a computer expert and all of these things, and we're going to showcase those abilities. I mean, we're making this into more of a detective comic Great. than a than a superhero comic. Nice. Um, and so it's a lot about her figuring stuff out and solving mysteries and solving puzzles and using her computer skills and all of these things. And using Um, her photographic memory, using her photographic memory a lot. And we're, you know, we're trying to do it in, um, a a visual way. This is something that, that surprisingly, when we've been going back and looking at older Batgirl comic, um, hasn't really been done is to show her 
actually show the audience her experience of her using her mind. Um, it's always done just with kind of narration or with her sort of like speaking it aloud. And, and what we wanted to do was to actually show her using her mind in, in an interesting way. Don't, don't so, spoil it. Don't spoil it anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I'm not spoiling, uh, um, anything story related, but, but that's just as our, our approach is that we wanted to, to make it, um, very, very front and center is her intelligence. That's awesome. That's really, really awesome. Um, I don't. I know Stephanie has one more question, but that's going to be kind of the end of our discussions. Uh, any more Batgirl questions, Steve? I have one. Yeah. You mentioned uh, you've talked a lot about building a new world for Barbara and such. Are there any characters that are going to be making their way from Gail Simone's Fifty Two into your story, and or are you going to be introducing some new characters that you can tell us about that you're like excited about? Oh, we've got a ton of new characters, um, but Alicia's there. Her her Sweet. roommate nice. is still in the story. Um, they're just not roommates anymore, and people are losing their mind because <laughs> they're not roommates anymore. Yeah, people don't always live with the same roommates, guys. <laughs> uh, Alicia is we, still her best friend, and she's yeah. still there, but she has a new roommate, Frankie Charles, and they all get along most of the time. Awesome. <laughs> we, uh, you know, we 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 thought long and hard about the role of Alicia. In, in our story and whether it would work and what, you know, whether it would correspond to the things that we had with the, you know, that, that we wanted to do with the book. And it was a long protracted discussion, I think, between not just with Brendan and myself, but also with our editors. Um, and ultimately we all sort of came, came upon the, the conclusion that, that she wasn't entirely right for this story. Um, and particularly with Barbara moving away. And so, She's not well, a regular. That's, I, I just let me clarify. It's not that yeah. she's not right for the story. She's not right to be the roommate at the moment because we right. need the roommate to fill a very particular role. Right. She is right for the story in another role, and it's the role that she currently plays with with um, Barbara. If you take the fact that they cohabitate right. out of the picture, well, I mean, right. it's expanding upon the character isn't a bad thing. I think no. people would look right. forward to that but, if if it's not appropriate for the situation. Yeah. Then you find another way to to include them, and if yes. anything, you're yeah. building upon what's already been established. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't want to lie and be and or, and mislead people. I mean, we definitely do not see as much of Alicia uh, as 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 in Gale's Run, or as we do of some of our newer characters that we've introduced. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, you know, we're we're very conscious of her importance, and we're very conscious of of the attachment that that. Uh, many fans have to her and so you know we're stressing that we're not we're not getting rid of her we're not you know but but she is taking a a, a bit of a, a different role to where she has been before but um something that that brendan and i both have direct experience of is packing up and moving to a different city because we you know we want to change it's why i currently live in berlin and that's why brendan currently lives in montreal is we you know we both came from different cities and we wanted to experience new things and a new environment and new people and everything and and uh in doing that you don't bring everybody with you mm -hmm. you you go you leave people behind and you go and you live a different chapter of your life and you still keep in touch with those people that you've left behind you know like i'm currently writing a comic book with one of them because right. i don't live in the same city with brendan anymore but we're still friends and we still do things together um so alicia is still there 
Um, <laughs> All right. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that is really cool. That's a, that's a good way yeah. to, uh, I don't, I love, I love the idea of having her on the outside, but still keeping her around doing more with the character. And that makes room for other great characters to come in. And that's the thing. And, and the, the mix of, um, it, to me, it's not realistic that your social circle involves a single person. And I think mm-hmm. what's what's going to make Alicia even more, give her more depth and make her more interesting is to see how she bounces off of um, more characters in Barbara's life. And that's the kind of thing that we'll see. And, you know, we're uh, hardcore fans are maybe not going to be as happy as they as they would want to be with the amount of screen time, page time she gets right. in this first arc. But we need that page time to not only tell a story about Barbara, but to allow her allow Barbara as a character to do this pivot. And then after we're able to do this, then everything kind of opens up a little more and we're able to have be a little more playful and and take a little more time right. with the characters. But there's a real We've got this real movement that we need to respect, and um, and we're trying to do something, and we're really trying to do it to make everybody happy, like and ourselves included. And I think if everybody can just go along with us for a while, they're going to love where we're taking them. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there's something to be said for anticipation, too. I mean, imagine mm-hmm. if she's not Certainly. around for a while, when you get to that panel where she opens the door and she's behind the door, people are going to freak. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just I, like, I don't the... make us tell you what's behind the yeah. door. <laughs> <laughs> Final page. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, right for the moment, Brendan and I are focusing on the first arc, obviously, and we want to make it as solid as we can. We definitely oh, talked a lot about what could we possibly do in the future. If, if, if this proves to be successful and we get to do, you know, uh, several years of this, you know, some of the things that we want to do. And, and, I can't say anything about what we're talking about, but we definitely are aware of all of the things that people want to see, and there are things that we also want to see, and we, we want to try and satisfy all of those things. Um, we're just going to need time. We'll need time to do it. Cool. Awesome. Bob, you have another question? Yes, I have one. Cameron, I'd like to talk for just a second because I, I'm so fascinated by the idea of the Royal Academy of Illustration and Design that you founded with Chip Zdarsky. <laughs> yeah. What is this all about? Yeah. Tell us. Those were uh, dirty well, days. Those were <laughs> dirty, <laughs> dirty days. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically what that was, was uh, it was uh, the four of us. It was me and Chip Starsky and Kagan McLeod, who's the artist of uh, Infinite Kung Fu, and he's done a bunch of magazine illustration. And he's one of the greatest artists I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. Um, and Ben Shannon, who's a magazine illustrator and musician, and we were all friendly and knew each other just from the sort of the comic scene in Toronto. And we, you know, we'd get together and have beer and talk and stuff. And, and we were just, the idea came up of like, why don't we all cohabitate and share a studio space? So we, we, um, we started a studio and we were just trying to come up with funny names for it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We had things like what were they? We had one uh, at for a time we were considering Wesley Snipes Studios. <laughs> <laughs> we thought that that may be a legal issue. Um, we were going to call it um, "Give Me Back My Son," uh, and we were going to have Letterhead that was just Mel Gibson screaming. Yeah. Um, that's a real dated joke, by the way. Yeah, but I love it. Works. <laughs> yeah, back in the day, it was you know it was relevant. Um, <laughs> And so anyway, so we came up with this idea of just having this unbelievably pretentious 
uh, image for the studio. So we came up with the Royal Academy of Illustration and Design, and we had like you know a, a coat of arms and <laughs> always, but we, what we and we had that on the door. Um, our biggest mistake was to actually list it in like the yellow pages and phone books uh, under that name because what happened was we just got an endless you know line of phone calls from people wanting to enroll in the Royal Academy or enroll their children or whatever and they thought that we were a legitimate um, you know art school <laughs> we had to we just had to sort of like no no we're just we're just four losers with a with a comic book studio. Um, and then so the, over time, the, the roster changed, you know, like people sort of came and went and um, Ramon Perez came in and Andy Boulanger and Carl Kershaw and, you know, and then all of the original members have since left. So, frankly, it is a pale shadow. Of what <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, you know, and, and I think over time, the, the whole Royal Academy thing got sort of trash, and it just became the acronym, and so now it's just RAID. It's just the RAID studio. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> and now it's like Ramon and Carrie Nord and Francis Manipal and a bunch of great guys all, all uh, together in that thing. It's, it's really strange, though. It's like when I see them as a collective talking about you know, the Raid Studios doing this and, and so on, and there's like, they had a film crew in there, you know, doing a documentary on them, or whatever, and yeah, it kind of makes me wistful for the old OG days, you know. <laughs> um, and Stephanie, you had a we have I think we have one more Batgirl question. Uh, the last one. Yeah, I think so. Right, you yeah. from you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> After reading the first issue of Batgirl when it comes out, what is one thing that you want people to take from it? Hmm, that's a good question, Brendan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't know I always defer to Brendan when I need time. <laughs> yeah, I know. Throw him into the fire. Yeah. You go. <laughs> I'm going to take this time to talk about my favorite kind of pizza. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, I I think I think we really want people to feel like this is the same Barbara Gordon. That this is the Barbara Gordon that they know. That that um, I want fans. Um, who are coming to it after having read uh, previous Batgirl issues or, or following Barbara in other mediums um, to feel like they recognize her and to feel like they're seeing things that that um, are kind of new and different through her eyes. And, um, and I want them to be excited about where the, the suggestions of where this is going to go because I, I think after you finish that first issue, there's a real suggestion of where the arc is going to take you. And, and it, it's, it's ultimately probably something a little different than what we're suggesting. But that's part of the surprise. Um, but it should feel fresh and new. And I don't want anybody thinking, like, feeling like they've... I don't want anybody having the takeaway that they've, they've just read a book that they've read before. Like, this is, this is like, oh, this is like any other DC comic or any Marvel comic. Like, it should feel completely fresh and new and exciting and I want everybody to go and pick up the next issue when it comes out for me I think um, I want people to know that we are really really sincere about what we're doing um, I've seen people say that you know that this is kind of a cynical uh, move and oh, DC's true. trying DC's trying to cash in on you know like the geek girl crowd or like Ms. Marvel Marvel was doing really well and so DC's trying to cash in on that or whatever and 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 that couldn't be further from the truth I mean really I, I this 
this was not a corporate mandate. This was a creative team decision. This was a thing where they said, what do you guys want to do with Batgirl? And we were like, this is what we want to do. And to, to their great credit, everyone at DC has been really, really supportive. But this was in no way a, a sort of a, a, a business decision or any kind of corporate uh, edict. This is just something that we really wanted to do. And we're, you know, we're, I lobby pretty hard. I think we all do. We lobby pretty hard on Twitter for like people to buy it and pre-order it and whatever because we want it to be a big hit. I mean, we want it to be the number one comic. But that's not because we want to get rich off of it. I mean, I, I honestly... <laughs> There's rich, I mean, and then there's comics rich. <laughs> but, but, but um, well, I don't know. Zdarsky's doing pretty well. But um, yeah, that guy. I I don't uh, I, I I don't want it to. This is something I I likely would be doing for free. It's it's um, this is a really important book for me. Um, and even though it is a corporate character and it's a work for hire job, it feels really personal to me now. And I'm, I'm sure it feels the same way for Brendan. It almost feels like a, like a, uh, a creator own thing, even though it totally isn't. Um, but I just want this to succeed because I think it's the right move. I think it's the right comic at the right time. And I think it, it what, what our goals for it is to accomplish some really important things for the industry and for the, you know, uh, I, I, I so I want it to be successful, um, just so that that message is sent. Absolutely, and yeah. I, I mean I know uh, Bob is was saying this before we got on air, but we're very happy with all of the reaction to it and everyone you know cosplaying. But they need to buy the book. They need to buy the book. <laughs> yeah. I keep saying, please Absolutely. don't buy don't buy a second variant cover of something else. Buy a second copy of Batgirl. <laughs> And pass it to somebody yeah. who needs to know that this sort of book is coming out. Now, are the pre-orders still open for Batgirl? Well, the orders have gone in as of last Thursday, I believe. Okay. Um, but there's still final order cutoff, which I believe is like the first week of September. Okay. Or, so maybe a week or two from now. So you can still, if you're a retailer, you can still bump your order up. Um, you've probably put in your your regular order for it, but you can still augment that. Yeah. Somebody leaving? Somebody left on their motorcycle. I'm out of here. We we don't do mic drops here in Montreal. We get on our Harleys. <laughs> uh, and the book is out um, October eighth, correct? October eighth. Awesome. Yes. And that is uh, right before New York Comic Con, and we will all be at New York Comic Con. Awesome. awesome. Sweet. We will be and, there as well. Uh, That'll be fun. Yeah. So we'll we'll be there. We'll be probably be doing some panels. We'll probably be doing some signings. Cool. Uh, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be you know Team Batgirl is gonna be there and flying the flag pretty high. So awesome, awesome. Um, and uh, speaking of the rest of Team Batgirl, we're gonna take a little break, um, and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit with Babs Tar, but. Cameron and Brendan, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Talking Comics. Um, we got a very special guest right now. Artist of the upcoming Batgirl, Babstar. Babstar, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. Of course. So, wow. So, the book is not even out yet. It comes out um, October 8th is your first issue. Uh, when Batgirl yep. 35 hits the stands. But how has it been uh, dealing with the, the reaction you, you guys have already gotten to, to the book? It's, it's been amazing. I, I had no idea it would be as big as it was, like, and, and positive. Like, um, it's, 
been pretty pretty different. Like I went from from almost nobody knowing my name to almost everyone in college knowing my name. So it's been really crazy. <laughs> um. Now, as far as the look and the design, um, I know obviously you collaborated on it, but what, what was what inspired you know the new look? Um, yeah, that Cameron had done the base of her outfit, and he was trying. He really set the tone. He wanted to be more practical and like sexy, but not sexual, you know, but still cool and tough and um, pra- you know, practical. I said that already. Uh, and when I got it, she had already had, like, um, the leather jacket and the boots and stuff, and I just kind of added some fashion, more fashion-y kind of type details to it to, to make it, like, take it to that extra level of, like, polish and cool. <laughs> um, and uh, what has it been like, you know, drawing it now? You know, you're doing a monthly book, you're, you're doing a Batgirl, uh, uh, of all things. What, what has it been like to be doing that kind of work monthly? Um, it's... It's been really fun. Like I just uh, uh, the when I first wrapped up the first issue, it felt really good, and it's like probably the most satisfying work I've ever gotten to do. Like, you know, um, I'm proud of the pages, and I hope everyone really enjoys them when they get them. And um, working with Cameron is great. You know, he's doing the layout for me because this is my first comic ever, and I just uh, we talked about it a lot. And, he, and I was I asked him, I was like, could you possibly do them because you know, I just want this to be the best it can be and go as smoothly as possible. And he totally agreed. And um, he does these layouts and the page breakdowns. And then I add my, like, I do this, I do a gestural sketch of my style on top and then I ink it. And we've been doing them that way. And it's been really fun. I, uh, I like it. I like it so far. I hope everybody hopes those too. <laughs> I mean, what was the, the process like of, you know, getting the gig, you know, but you say you haven't done a, a, a full comic before. What's the, what was that process like? Um, it was pretty surreal. Like Cameron emailed me out of the blue and asked if I'd even, if I'd be interested in doing a book with DC comics. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, of course I would be interested, but, um, my stuff looks nothing like them and I've never done a sequential page before. <laughs> pretty much like a long shot the whole time you know and he you know and he was also like pitching his version of the book that he wanted to see as well so like at that point neither of us had um the gig yet and um you know he kept emailing me and telling me we were like one step closer and one step closer and i was like okay like let me know and dc comics decided to hire me (laughs) I i thought it was like such a long shot (laughs) <laughs> and um you, you know he emailed me one day and he's like all right it's down to you and one other artist and i was like what are you even talking about right now <laughs> so um so yeah then i heard from an editor and i was like oh my gosh this is this is real this is really happening and um she asked if i had sequential work and i told her no but i'd love to you know i'd love to do a couple test pages for you guys and um I did them, and the next day they gave me the gig. Awesome! That, that, I mean, that's great. It's yeah, a, it, it's it's a it's been a really nice feel good story. I think of the past couple of months, uh, the whole you know Batgirl of Burnside and all that stuff that's been going on. It's been really really awesome. Um, 
when you when you're attacking Barbara as a character, did you decide to go back and draw inspiration from any past runs? Did you look at other Batgirl work the other artists had done, other writers had done? Um, definitely. I probably not as much as I'd like to because, like, once they said yes, like we really had to go, mm-hmm. uh, Bogey. Um, but uh, I read a little bit of Gales, and I've been trying to get my hands on Batgirl Year One because I heard that is a great. Yeah. and it's a, it's in a vein that we have so I haven't gotten I keep asking and no one has it so I need to like <laughs> I need to get my hands on it because I really want to read that one I think it's really good um, and of course like I know Bruce Tim is a huge inspiration and like everyone was talking about how like oh my Batgirl Stephanie or my Batgirl's uh, Cassandra Kane or whatever and I was like oh well I, I grew up with the animated you know, Batman the Animated Series, and my Batgirl was always Barbara Gordon, so I was like, I was happy that it's her. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in his, in Bruce Tim's style, like, alone is, like, an inspiration. So his, his Batgirl and her attitude is probably, like, my biggest inspiration for, for ours. Yeah, I mean, I think I think for a lot of people, like, the, to me, that's that was always my Barbara Gordon. That was always my Batgirl as well. Yeah. Was, you know, the, the Tara Strong-voiced uh, character from the Animated Series. Um, I... I so when you think of Barbara, you know, what do you think it makes her up? What are the, what are the characteristics you think of when you think of Barbara Gordon? Um, I think she is sweet, but tough and very strong. She's just gone through so much. And I know our Barbara in particular is really trying to, um, you know, just move on from, from all the hardships she's been going through. Not like, they won't be gone and she won't ever deal with them, but she is going to be trying to like be her age and, and, you know, enjoy like being young, you know, cause she's been back girl since she was 16 and she hasn't really had time to like be 21, you know, like be young. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about our, our back girl. That's what I'm going to try to portray. Of course it doesn't last very long. So she also is very kick ass. Well, absolutely. You guys pick it up and check it out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And when you, you know, obviously the the book's going to have its quiet moments, its funny moments, its emotional moments, and its action moments. What is kind of, what is the process of kind of doing both of those things for you? Is there a big difference for you between kind of visualizing an action scene and then, you know, um, visualizing and and coming up with the ways to portray more subtle emotions in, in the work? Oh, um, yeah, we actually, for this particular book, um, you know, in the past, she, this last run of her, she has been very much hunting down murderers, and it was really gritty and dark, and um, for this new series, we're going to focus more on her detective skills and her intelligence, and um, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about it, but she's going to have, like, this um, kind of detective mode vision that she does, and it's gonna go. It's gonna be like time freezes, and she like analyzes things and like sees clues, and um, it's gonna be really cool. And we've been really working really hard on like making that a really clear, fun visual language in the comic books. That that's awesome. I, mean, I think that's a, that's a fantastic idea. I think one of the things that's most interesting about the Bat characters is that um, is that detective that the using of their brains is is as big as using of their fists. And I think that that's awesome that you guys are gonna be featuring that. 
in the book. Yeah, yeah, heavily. Yeah, that's her. That's her like main superpower. That's great. Um, and also, you know, from all the press we've read about the book, you know, you guys are kind of taking her away from kind of the the main events that are happening in Gotham and, and kind of really forming kind of her own world. So, are, are um, how has it been kind of developing this this Burnside uh, kind of world for her? Well, the boys, the writers, are really they're doing a great job with that. Mm-hmm. Like they kind of, I let them do their thing with a lot of that, and then they might. You know, they'll tell me about it, and I can throw my two cents in from, like, a girl point of view, like, mm-hmm. but um, they've been developing a lot of Burnside, and um, I think it's going to be really cool that that part of the city, it's going to be different, but it's still going to have, like, its own set of villains, which will be cool. Um I kind of got lost with the question. What was <laughs> more specifically again? Just as you know, because Gotham is obviously very well-worn territory visually and everything, and, and a lot of great artists will do it and continue to do it, but you know, you're getting to kind of um, not create something totally from scratch, but a lot from scratch, a neighborhood that we don't really know, a yeah. world that we don't really know. Um, and so is there, obviously, the, you said, you know, obviously Cameron and Brendan are doing a lot of the legwork, you know, conceptualizing it but you're going to kind of bring it to life visually so what what has it been like doing that oh yeah we it's very um it's very much like brooklyn it's very much um uh, very gentrified looking and um a lot of the big scenes you'll be able you know if there's a big street scene and you're pulled out really far like you can see gotham like we'll have gotham in the horizon you know mm-hmm. like very far away and <laughs> like over the bridge and stuff like you'll see like the city but like all of her buildings are i'm a little more run down and um uh you know right. uh, very not as fancy as the city would be <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> Oh, ironically wearing, you know, Batman t-shirts and stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of bicycle repair <laughs> shops and coffee shops and uh, clothing clothing stores that are, like, used clothing stores that are marked up, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, uh, I want to leave you with one, one last question for you, and this kind of comes from uh, one of our okay. contributors, uh, Steve Say. He said, um, what, is it you, what mark do you want to leave uh, on the character of Barbara Gordon when you're done? Um, I just want to, I just want to make a really cool that everyone and remembers. Um, that's all I really want to, want to leave this, 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 from this run and this character. Like, I want it to be memorable. I want people to have a heart connect with her, like, for, and like, I just, yeah, I just want people to have fun. And I hope it, 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 um, they'd like it. <laughs> I'm sure they will. That sounds really sounds thinking it sounds so cheesy, but that's kind of how I feel about it. I mean, I think that will. I mean, obviously the reaction already has been amazing. I, I know that we're all extremely excited uh, to read the book when it comes out on October 8th and um, looking forward to the new direction of the character. And Babs Tar, thank you so much for talking with us here at Talking Comics. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much to our guests. That was awesome, yeah. awesome time. Um, guys, remember, like we said at the end, make sure if you're interested in this Batgirl book, go and buy it. Whether you order it from your shop, you go in, you order the next issue, or you're buying it digitally, just make sure you support something that you're interested in. Um, all the fan art and cosplaying and stuff is, is awesome and amazing, and it's a, good, it's a great illustration of, of the culture we have. But unless you buy the book, it's not going not gonna to be anything to cosplay of. Yes. <laughs> and we didn't actually get a chance to ask them where you could find them online. Oh, right. And yeah, yeah. You can find them online in the show notes. Uh, and Brendan Fletcher is 
I believe just Brendan Fletcher on Twitter, but Brendan with a D E N mm-hmm. instead of D A N and Cameron Stewart is Cameron M Stewart and Babs Tar is Babs Draws. Yeah. Um and uh was it Backgirl of Burnside dot Tumblr dot com? Yes. Yep. Well. Great tumblets. You want to see the fan art tons and tons of it over there. Yeah, really, really great stuff. Um but let's talk about that book's out in October. Let's talk about the books that are on the shelves right now. Okay. Uh, from Action Lab Entertainment. Thank you, Stephanie, for uh, <laughs> giving me permission. Uh, from Action Lab, we've got Hero Cats, number one, and, so Shinobi, and Shinobi Ninja Princess, number one. Uh, from Archie Comics, we've got Mega Man, number 40, um, and Sonic Universe, number 67, as well as they're doing something interesting, Archie. They're, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, volume one, Countdown to Chaos, straight paperback it's new it's an all-new story it seems like for their regular sonic stuff they're gonna be releasing it in um trade format uh from now on so that's pretty cool what's the price on that just uh 12.99 it amazes me how far that character has gone in comic book form farther than it ever went in video game form absolutely uh, from Doom, Boom Studios, we got Bee and Puppycat, number three, Bravest Warriors, number 23, Evil Empire, number four, uh, Regular Show, number 14. Um, let's see here. From Dark Horse Comics. No Steed and Mrs. Peel, number two? I don't see that on here, did I? Oh, no, it is here. Steed and Mrs. Peel, number two. We're Needed is the subtitle of that mm-hmm. one. Um, sorry about that, Bob. That's one of the only books I'm getting this week, so <laughs> I, know. I knew that one intimately. Uh, from Dark Horse Comics, we've got Baltimore, The Witch of Harju, number two, Captain Midnight, number 14, Conan the Avenger, number five, Deep Gravity, number two, Dream Thief Escape, number three. Uh, we've got Emily and the Strangers Breaking the Record, number three. We've got Goon, Occasion of Revenge, number two of four. Uh, Gru versus Conan, number two. That's hysterical. Halo Escalation, number nine. Um, we've got Massive, number 26. Mind Management, number 25. Pariah, number seven. Pop, number one of four. Star Wars Legacy 2, number 18. Sundowners, number one. Tomb Raider, number seven. From DC Comics, we've got Adventures of Superman, number 16. All-Star Western, number 34, which is the final issue of that. Uh, Aquaman, number 34. Batman 66, number 14. Batman Beyond Universe, number 13. Sorry, excuse me. Batman Eternal, number 21. Batman Superman, number 13. Bodies, number 2. Catwoman, number 34. Um, We've got... That's the last old Catwoman? I believe so, yes. I'm going to check just to make sure. Um, I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) What do you mean you're holding your breath? The new one's coming. The new one. The one when the, the new team. Oh, yeah, yeah. What do you mean you're not holding your breath? I I need to see it before I believe it. I, I want that book to be good so bad. For so, oh, here we go. Yeah, it's the, yeah, it's the last yeah. uh, of the Anne Nocenti uh, books. Uh, we've got Deadboy Detectives, number eight. Uh, we've got Flash, number 34. Harley Quinn, number 10. Uh, He-Man, the Masters of the Universe, number 16. Injustice, Gods Among Us, year two, number 10. Justice League Dark, number 34. New 52, Future's End, number 17. Red Lanterns, number 34. We've got Secret Origins, number 5. Sinestro, number 5. Star Spangled War Stories featuring G.I. Zombie, number (laughs) 2. Superman, number 34. From Dynamite Entertainment, we've got Army of Darkness. Ash Gets Hitched, number 2. Bob's Burgers, number 1. Yes. Uh, We've got, uh, let's see what we got here. I love that show. Uh, Flash Gordon, number 5. Um... Legendary, uh, no, that's a variant. Com- that's a variant cover. Uh, and that's it. Uh, lots of variant covers. IDW, we've got uh, 24, number five, Seventh Sword, number four, Borderlands, The Fall of Firestone, number two, 
Cartoon Network Super Secret Crisis War number three, hmm. Ghostbusters number nineteen, Godzilla Rulers of Earth number fifteen, uh, Kill Shakespeare the Mask of Night number three, Last Fall number two. Um, we've got uh, Star Trek Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of Forever, the original Ooh. teleplay number three of five. <laughs> uh, we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in Time number three, Transformers more than ACI. That is correct. Number thirty-two, <laughs> uh, Transformers versus GI Joe number two, and V Wars number five. Uh, from Image Comics, we've got Black Science, number eight, Cowl, number four. We've got um, Dream Police, number four, Drumheller, number eight, Genius, number five of five, and number four of five, it seems like. Uh, Low, number two, Manhattan Projects, number 23, uh, Mice Templar, four, Legend, number 13, uh, Outcast, number three, Revival, number 23, Saga, number 22, Sex, number 15, Spawn, number 246, Wayward, number one, yes. uh, Wildfire, number three. Um, let's see, from Marvel Comics, we've got All New Invaders, number nine, yes. All New Ultimates, number seven. Uh, we've got All New X-Men, number 31, Amazing Spider-Man, number 1.4, Avengers, number 34, um, we've got Avengers Undercover, number nine. Cyclops, number four. We've got uh, Fantastic Four, number <laughs> nine. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy, number 18. Um, Inhuman, number four. <gasps> we've got... Uh, <laughs> uh, we've got... Ooh, That's amazing. Lots and yeah. lots of uh, second yeah, right. printings. Um, oh, Original Sin, number 5.0. Four? Is that the is Hulk out? one or the Thor one? I'm not sure, but that's the Thor one. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, what else we got here? We've got um, Savage Hulk number three, uh, Silver Surfer number five, Thunderbolts oh. number thirty, Uncanny Avengers number twenty-three, Wolverine number twelve, Wolverine the X-Men number eight, uh, and that's it. I believe that Wolverine number twelve is the last issue of the uh, Cornell so. run before. We get into the death of Wolverine. Death of Wolverine. Yes. Um, He's all out of beer. From Titan Publishing, we've got Doctor Who, the Tenth Doctor, number two, Alien Legion, Uncivil War, number three. From Valiant, we've got uh, uh, Rye, number four, and Exo Man of War, number 28. And from Xenoscope, we've got uh, Hercules Pain, number five, and Warlord of Oz, number four. Uh, that is what's on the shelves right now. If you guys want to get in contact with us, it's podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com, at talkingcomics on Twitter, facebook.com slash talkingcomics, and talkingcomicbooks.com is, of course, the website where you can get all our reviews, articles, podcasts, and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, my personal Twitter is at Bobby Shortle. Steve. My personal Twitter is at dead underscore anchorus. Stephanie. At hello cookie. Bob email address. Bob Ryer at talkingcomicbooks.com. Now is what time I asked. Does Bob, do you have anything to say before? No, I can barely think at this point uh make sure you check out all the podcasts obviously uh you're listening to talking comics there's talking games every thursday we've got the misfits which just put up a new episode got talking valiant and talking movies lots and lots of stuff um yeah what's up i just wanted to plug the show for this week for our topic okay that's like that cool man go ahead uh, this week on the Talking Games podcast, we're going to be doing our top five portable games of all time. Nice listy podcast if you want to check that out. Awesome. And uh, Stephanie, you guys just did listener questions? Yeah, that was so much fun. We answered a whole metric button of questions <laughs> that people submitted through the forums, Twitter, and email and had a whole lot of fun doing it. 
Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> a metric butt ton. A yep. metric butt ton. That's what happens up in Canada. Yep. <laughs> and that's going to do it for the Talking Comics podcast Ooh. for this week. Are wait, you, wait. I'd asked before if anybody had anything to say. I know, but I thought that was only to Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, yeah, uh, I'll be at some. Fan Expo this week from Thursday till oh. Sunday. So if you are at Fan Expo in Toronto, uh, tweet me to come say hi. I'm not working any particular booths, except for Thursday. I will be at the Suckers Apparel booth, which is uh, attached to the Silver Snail. Okay. Um, so if you're around at the show and you want to say hello, let me know where you are. And maybe we can, hey, say hi. And if you don't want to hang out with Stephanie and you want to hang out with me instead, I'll be there on Saturday. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Awesome. So that's going to do it for the Talking Comics podcast for this week. For Steve. See you later. Bob. Food, glorious food. And Stephanie. Night pizza. I have been Bobby. <laughs> Until next time on Talking Comics. To be continued. cool guys awesome all right so let me get the comic list up we'll just do that right now i'm so hungry well we're almost we're like five minutes from the end me too well i i had a cucumber and tomato salad and i was like bitch is being healthy but bitch (laughs) wants a night pizza that's what she wants i'm with with you steph oh i want pizza so badly i had